Hello, and welcome to Entangled, the podcast where we explore the science of consciousness, the true nature of reality, and what it means to be a spiritual being having a human experience. I'm your host, Jordan Euclid, and today I'm joined by my friend, John Decker. Decker and I start the conversation discussing nature, New Zealand, rugby, and lacrosse. We next discuss John's decision to attend Wabash and what it was like having an all-male college experience. From there, we discuss his parents' military career and how Decker dealt with the loss of his father shortly after graduating college. From there, we consider the relationship of dreams and reality and consider what happens after death and before life. We next discuss Eastern mysticism and medicine, why we've collectively become disillusioned with Western medicine, and where we could be heading with the future of human health. We then shift gears to discuss American politics, our current state of hyper-divisiveness, and whether the two-party state is truly a failed uniparty. We next consider the exit strategy for the Ukraine conflict, Jeffrey Epstein's crime syndicate, and the role blackmail plays in politics today. From there, we discuss the degradation of democratic rights in light of censorship and the events of January 6th, and we speculate on the 2024 election and the candidacy of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. We then discuss our views on vaccine safety and how that has developed since before the pandemic. We consider the loss of public trust in mainstream media and the rise of independent journalism. We examine the potential for future overreach by the government, including the WHO's pandemic treaty amendment, the possibility of World War III, and the threat of a deep state false flag masquerading as a hostile extraterrestrial attack. In this light, we consider the future of humanity and how we can avoid dystopia. We end the conversation on a number of heavier topics, including the true depth of corruption and criminality of politicians like Hillary Clinton and Anthony Weiner, and the disturbing but true phenomenon of adrenochrome harvesting. We consider the story of MK Ultra survivor Kathy O'Brien and of the dark history of that CIA program. We discuss the porn industry and its ties to financing the deep state. Finally, we discuss the Great Emu War of Australia, hippo meat, meat alternatives, and fermented shark. We end the conversation discussing our diets and fitness routines. This outro asks, who is Hillary Rodham Clinton? Outro is available for this and all episodes at entangledpodcast.substack.com. Music from the show available on the Spotify playlist, Entangled the Vibes. Please enjoy. John Decker, welcome to the Entangled Podcast. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing great. How are you, Jordan? Doing Good to great. see you again. It's been a while. Yeah, man. It's, it's been a while, so I'm glad that we got a chance to get together and talk on some Entangled shit today. Absolutely. Yeah, I know. I haven't spent a lot of time together since our Moab trip. Yeah, man. It's we definitely want to talk about, uh, talk about Moab and how amazing that beautiful place is. Before we get into all that, though, John, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I've lived out here in Colorado for about four years. Before that, was I was in Chicago. I'm a native of Northwest Indiana. So spent a lot of time in the Midwest and just love living out here, you know, outdoors. And it was, it's funny, even as a kid, I remember, you know, being fascinated with mountains and just where I'm from in the Midwest, like totally flat, you know, lots of greenery, forests, that kind of thing. And yeah. grew up near Lake Michigan. Beautiful. But I knew, you know, I went to New Zealand, studied abroad. And just seeing the mountains there, I was always kind of drawn to it. Uh, so getting out here is like a dream come true for me. For yeah. Sure. But yeah, I've been out here four years, like I said. I've been in the logistics industry my entire professional career. But yeah, man, just love the outdoors, love camping, hiking, that kind of thing. So it's a perfect place for me. 
Yeah. So, I mean, obviously growing up in Indiana, as you mentioned, you know, you didn't necessarily have that same type of scenery. So what do you think it was that attracted you to the outdoors? You know, my, my dad was a, was a huge outdoorsman, hunting, fishing. I remember as a kid spending a lot of time, you know, we, we had a, a little bit of land in Indiana, just like kind of walking around the property with him. I always grew up with dogs too. So spending time out outside with the dogs around the property, just something that I always really enjoyed. And it, it's, it's funny, like you look back on it when you're older and you kind of have an uh, idyllic representation and memories of those times, like you know, even though it was flatland and it was so much different than Colorado, like you kind of yearn to be outside again and, and being here, it, it encompasses all those things. Right. Yeah. So then when I was able to go to New Zealand, I'm like, Oh, you know, there's more than just the Midwest or Chicago. Like it's like all these beautiful places out there. So that's kind of what spurred it in me for sure. Yeah. And what do you think it was that attracted you to New Zealand in particular? So it, that's, that's another one of those things from my childhood. I, I remember the moment really well. I was actually watching Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, with uh-huh. my dad in theaters. And I think my sister was with us too. But So this would have been like 2003, 2004. And I remember after the movie got done, I was a young, I mean, I was 11 years old. I was a pretty young kid. I remember asking my dad, I'm like, is, is like, this a real place? Like Middle Earth? He's like, yeah, it's New Zealand. And I remember telling him, I'm like, I want to go there one day. So I remember, dude, I was always like a huge maps guy when I was a kid. And I, I still am. Like, I'm fascinated with maps. Yeah. I remember like pulling out this old like Rand McNally Atlas that my parents had and pointing out New Zealand. And be like, this looks like a pretty cool place to visit. So it was kind of always in the back of my head that I'd like to get to a place like that and travel. So when I got to college, you know, I went to a small school in Indiana called Wabash. When I was there, I remember thinking, I'm like, man, I'd, I'd love to study abroad, like especially New Zealand, like that's yeah. the place I'd want to go. But I remember for my major being a history major, it's like, dude, they're probably not going to let you go. Like it's more like for econ or like biology, you know, it was a liberal arts college. So the majors were very limited. So if, if like chemistry, bio, they studied abroad a lot. Or if you were, you know, a Spanish major, that kind of thing, you go to Spain, but they they accepted my application to go to New Zealand. So I was just over the moon when I when I finally got to go. So that was my first time out of the country was going to New Zealand. No way. That's a bit of a hike cool. for your first time. Yeah. I remember being a little nervous about, you know, an 18-hour flight because flew Chicago to LAX, then LAX to, to Auckland, New Zealand. But I don't know if you could pick a better first country to go to, for sure. Yeah. And you played rugby there as well, right? I did, yeah. So I was I was involved, you know, studying abroad and then I had a roommate when I was in New Zealand, a flatmate who who played for this this local rugby team. And he's like, yeah, dude, you should come out and play because I'd played a semester at Wabash in preparation to go to New Zealand. So I'm like, oh, I'm going to go there. Like, I need to learn how to play rugby. I was playing lacrosse at Wabash at the time. And then I just picked up rugby. So it would have been fall semester and just to kind of prepare to go go down there and play. So yeah. got to play for a local club. Super cool. Got to travel a bit really learned a lot about the culture. Yeah. Sure. And did you keep up with rugby at all after you got back? So I played a little bit in Chicago, Lincoln Park, just a, a smaller club up in the city. And then do just back injuries, like being six foot eight and like a bigger guy just kind of got the best of me. So I kind of shifted my focus more into lifting and that sort of thing. Uh-huh. But, uh-huh. And uh, I don't know much about rugby. Like what are the basic rules? Yeah. So it's the 
original version of American football descends from rugby. Like that, that would be its parent or almost like a grandparent because it's evolved so much over time. American football, that is, with the forward pass and, you know, all the crazy things you see on Sundays now. It's it's uh, several iterations away from from rugby. So with, with rugby, you've got 15 players on each side. Of course, you've probably seen the scrums on TV mm-hmm. where everybody comes together. A touchdown is called a try. Like there's there's things that are, are pretty similar to American football, but no forward passing. Obviously, you have the scrum to get possession of the ball. There's a, a break in the action, and it's a running clock. So it's it's tough for Americans to get into because there's not the stoppages like you have in American football. Where it's, yeah. almost, it's almost like a made-for-TV sport, American football. Like you stop – you know, you see ads for for beer, like <laughs> go get some chips. Yeah, yeah, go get <laughs> chips. Like, uh, you know, take a break. You know, everybody's checking their phone out for gambling or fantasy. So uh-huh. it's it's you know become its own beast. Rugby's you know they always say soccer's the the hooligans game played by gentlemen. Or I'm sorry, it's the gentlemen's game played by hooligans. Rugby is the hooligans game played by gentlemen. So it's got hmm. such a a cool culture because even though on the field you guys are you know, beating the shit out of each other. And it's a pretty intense physical game. Afterwards, everybody goes to the pub or the bar and, you know, kind of just enjoys, you know, sharing that game together. Yeah. It's an awesome sport, dude. That's cool. I've been to a a couple of Australian football games as well. Awesome. How does that fit into the whole mix? So was it Australian rules? Yeah. So that, that's a little bit different because, so it's almost like a, like an oct, like a giant octagon. It's huge. Yeah. Huge. Tons of kicking. I didn't, I don't know a ton about it. I know like there's a there's a team in Sydney that's owned by Russell Crowe, which huh. is really interesting. <laughs> One of the best nicknames too, the Rabbitos. So they've got these like sweet pink jerseys with these rabbits on it. Again, a super physical game, but a lot of finesse with kicking too. It's a good sport. Yeah, that's pretty wild. And I didn't realize that you were playing lacrosse at Wabash. Yes. So I I uh, lacrosse is one of the first sports I I really loved growing up. So. You know, being in Indiana, like lacrosse wasn't really a thing. And we had a middle school team that started up and I had a couple buddies in the neighborhood that were playing. They're like, yeah, dude, like play baseball together. Lacrosse is like way more fun. And I didn't know anything about it. I'm just like, yeah, lacrosse, like it's got the stick, you know, shoot, shoot the ball, like the hard rubber ball. I'm like, this, this looks pretty sweet. So I started playing in middle school, played in high school. And then I, when I got to Wabash, I originally was there to play tennis. Mm. So I loved playing tennis in high school. But lacrosse, I always kind of enjoyed more, like the camaraderie, the team aspect of it. So played a couple years when I was there. And it, it was club status, like, for a while. And then when I got there, like, the club kind of kind of died out. And then we, you know, me and a few other people at Wabash kind of brought it back and then transitioned to an NCAA sport right after the time I left. So it was kind mm-hmm. of cool to, to be a part of that. I mean, we, you know, we weren't a great team or anything, but it was still fun to play lacrosse. Yeah. Did, did you play lacrosse at all? No, I've actually never played. It's a dude. It's a great sport. I kind of thought it would take off more, like from a viewership standpoint here in the U.S. because it's it's so fun to play. But the Mammoth actually play a playoff game tonight over at Ball Arena. It's a, the indoor team. Have you ever been to a game? No, dude. It's wild because yeah. it's it's more like the indoor version of lacrosse is a little bit like hockey. So super physical, fast paced. Goalies have these like massive pads on where that's like they basically block the goal, but. Yeah, I love playing lacrosse. And even when I was in New Zealand, there was this local high school and they, I don't even remember how they reached out to me and another guy who was in my program, but we coached this local team Mm -hmm. for a couple months. And then 
the school in Chicago, I coached there as well. So it was yeah. just fun to give back, man. It was such a great sport. Yeah, that's crazy, man. It definitely sounds like you were staying busy in New Zealand. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I was, man. It was it was a good time. I, I certainly would love to go back. Yeah. Yeah. And Wabash was an all-boys all school, you're saying, right? Yes. One of three all-male colleges left in the U.S. And I know you're wondering what the other two are. So I'll tell you. So Hamden, Sydney, and Virginia's one. And then Morehouse College, which is where Dr. Martin Luther King went, and mm. Denzel Washington too. Wow. So, so kind of cool, but it was it was a different experience. I remember telling my friends in high school, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to Wabash. And like in Indiana, everybody kind of knew it. Nationally, I don't think it's as well known. Did you ever hear of it by chance? Because I know you're from Cincinnati. I've heard Cincy. the name, yeah. yeah. I didn't realize it was all male. Yeah. So I, I remember like getting weird looks from my buddies when I told <laughs> they're like, wait, dude, like we're all going to like IU or Purdue or like had some friends going to like Michigan state. And they're like, why would you go to a 900 person all male college? So certainly got a lot of, you know, interesting reactions from friends with that. But, you know, I think part of the reason I went and it, and it really shaped who I am today, you know, I wasn't a great high school student. Yeah. I did well on the test, you know, ACT to get into Wabash and I, I had things that I was really passionate about learning when I was in high school. Like I loved history. I loved, reading and learning more about politics. Like I remember the 2008 election was one that I like really paid close attention to. And that was, that was Barack's first one. Yeah, it was Barack against uh, McCain. McCain. Which, I mean, we look back on that now. It's like, man, what would we, you know, to have that back, right? <laughs> and I remember, it's funny, like one of my earliest memories as a kid was the Al Gore Bush election in 2000, like the recount. Yeah, I remember that. I'm like, what is a hanging chad? <laughs> Everybody's talking about this. Like my parents are watching the news, but I digress. So going to Wabash really showed me that, you know, the things I was passionate about, I could learn more and kind of ha have like that thirst for learning. Mm -hmm. And in a place like that, a liberal arts college where it's all male, you know, really serious academic, you know, tradition, and just a really cool tradition with the yeah. college in general. It really helped shape who I was because, you know, you study a lot of different disciplines there, whether it's like chemistry, biology, you have to take a little bit of everything. Kind of helped shape me into what I, I mean, I would consider myself pretty well-rounded in a lot of aspects. And, and yeah. it's because of that school. Yeah, that's really cool to hear. And, you know, it's, it's interesting what you're saying there because I went to Indiana, you know, and I'd say I definitely... Uh, I love my college experience. I don't want to. I don't want to like disparage it by any means. But I do think that I got far too pulled into the fraternity scene, sure. the party scene, right? And in hindsight, it's like, man, like you're at the school with so many resources, so much to learn. Did I really make the the fullest and best use of those four years? Right. And even for me, you know, being at a school like Wabash, you know, where there's still there's still a social element to it. Like I, I was in a fraternity and you know, made some great friends in that. And, you know, there'd, there'd be parties and that kind of thing too. And a lot of my friends and, and I think 40% of the student body was involved in a NCAA sport. Wow. So it was a much different college experience in that way. And and even for me, you know, having that experience, there are still things I look back on where it's like, man, you know, I, I wish I would have taken the career center more seriously and just seen what would have happened. And I, and I love the career that I'm in now. But it's it's just funny looking back on that. I think everybody has that experience, whether you go to IU, Harvard, Wabash, Texas, what have you. But when were you at IU? 20, 2007 to 2011. Okay. And what made you choose there? Just out of curiosity. Uh, I got a scholarship there. Yeah. So that was kind of the main driver. Okay. But it just happened to that, like, 
five of my best friends from high school all ended up going to Indiana too. Sweet. Yeah. I'm sure like a lot of kids from your area as well. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I remember like it, it was funny at Wabash just like, you know, we'd all be in like our, our study room at the fraternity, you know, cranking out papers late night and like you'd have a couple buddies around you and some of us are just like, man, like really should have went to IU. <laughs> like, you don't have that experience because it's like, you you know, Snapchat was a huge thing back sure. then. And, and you'd see like everybody partying on a Wednesday night or Thursday. Yeah. It's like, dude, like what am I doing here? Yeah. But of course, like everything works out luckily. So totally. But totally different experience for sure. For sure. And I have to say, I mean, the women at IU are beyond reproach yeah <laughs> yeah the, the best yeah that was certainly something i missed in my college experience but you know luckily everything worked out for sure yeah were there like neighboring colleges that were you, like hanging out with the girls from there dude that's always the question uh-huh. people ask for sure so purdue was probably like an hour north and uh-huh. then iu was two hours and ball state which you might have heard of was yeah. like two hours away as well so you know any chance we got we'd make our way up there have uh-huh. a know a freshman drive us or if, if we were freshmen at the time we'd, you know carpool with some buddies but yeah it would get a little quiet there you know at wabash on on some weekends it's like half the fraternity or a bunch of your buddies would be away on like sports trips like whether it's baseball football basketball whatever and it's like you're kind of just sitting around it's like damn it's kind of quiet here you know you're yeah. just in the middle of indiana like with not a ton to do so obviously you know drinking playing video games hanging out that kind of thing but yeah, overall, it was a good experience for sure. I don't, yeah. I don't know if I would have my son go there. I think it was a great experience for me, but, you know, obviously it's it's not for everyone. Sure. Right? Just like anything else. For sure. For sure. And you mentioned that, you know, you're really interested in history, political science. Yeah. What do you think drove that? So my my dad was a, was a huge history guy. Mm-hmm. I remember as a kid, you know, you just have these, these really funny memories of, of relatives. And one of the foremost that I have my dad, you know, we'd be in the living room and be watching TV with my mom and, you know, just kind of hanging out. And he'd always have a book, dude, like Mm -hmm. always reading. And like the civil war was something he, he really loved reading about because we had family that fought in the civil war, Mm -hmm. like represented the union. And my namesake, just John Schuyler is, is because of his great grandfather who fought in the civil war. So so kind of, kind of cool and fought for Indiana, which something I'm very proud of, but my dad was always really interested in U.S. history and going, going back to that memory of all of us just sitting around, he, he'd have a book and would, would almost like, he'd be like, hey, John, like, listen to this. And he'd read a passage or something. And, and as a kid, you're like, you know, dad, I'm trying to watch like the Bears <laughs> or the Bulls or whatever I was watching at the time. Maybe it was the Cubs, but like, oh, wow, that's really cool. Kind of like not along. And it wasn't until I was older, maybe maybe at the end of high school, that I'm like, oh, you know, he's sharing these things with me because he's really passionate about it and wants me to learn more about it as well. So I think just kind of being around my dad when I was a kid, I was always exposed to history mm-hmm. and just grew to love it from there. You know, I remember, you know, being pretty young and I could ask my dad, I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, what's what's the capital of of chad or sudan and he'd always have an answer and it would almost like become a game where i try to stump him so i think that's where i get my love of history from is just kind of talking with him about that stuff very cool for sure you mentioned that your ancestor's last name was skyler gotta ask any relation to like the alexander hamilton skyler oh no so middle name skyler Uh, yeah yeah so (laughs) and and that middle name comes from skyler colfax who's a vice president of the no, and it's, it's spelled the Dutch way, S-C-H-U-Y-L-E-R, which is kind of funny when people see it. They're like, oh, Schuler is your middle name? But 
Skyler is just the, the Dutch way of spelling it, which is kind of cool. Yeah, definitely. A little bit different. But yeah, lots of, uh, lots of you know, military history interest in my family and, and a military background as well. Uh-huh. Well, you mentioned both your, your parents were in the military as well. So, is that right? Yes. Yeah, so my, my dad had a pretty interesting story. So he, he was drafted to Vietnam towards the end of the war. I think it was 1970 or 1971. Mm-hmm. And I remember he, he never really talked about it a whole lot, but I remember as a kid asking him about it and he, he would talk to me. Mm-hmm. He was drafted, I think at age 20 or 21. So he was one of the older drafted guys in a platoon. And I remember, you know, hearing his experience about that, like even just those two or three years of difference, it was a big deal because some of these guys, you know, were straight out of high school getting drafted. It's crazy. Uh, now what's kind of, what's kind of funny is he, he had some college experience, but he was like do minuscule credit hours shy of not being drafted. But I remember talking to him and I, one of the, one of the memories I have of him that really sticks out too. I remember asking him like, and I was a young guy asking him this, yeah. like 14 or 15. I'm like, did you ever think about not going? Cause I, you know, you read about Vietnam, people go to Canada or, sure. or enlist in the national guard. And he was like, no, that wasn't an option. Like I, he, like it wasn't, it never crossed his mind. So I always had a, real, a lot of respect for him because of that and really admired him for that. So he, yeah, he was in Vietnam. He was an M60 gunner on a half track. So had a lot of really interesting stories. And then my mom, she joined the army reserves much later. I want to say sometime in the eighties. My parents are a little bit older. My my mom was 42 when I was born. Mm. And my dad was 45. Mm. But she went to Korea, was, was there for a little bit. And then I think bounced around the little of the U.S. a little bit and then left the army when she was pregnant with me. Interesting. Yeah. So you mentioned your dad was drafted, you know, towards the end of Vietnam. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, have you ever asked him, like, what were his views on the war? So, you know, you know, I, ne- I never really had much of an opportunity to, to talk to him about that. I think for him, it was it was something that, you know, if he was drafted, he was going to go. Yeah. And I remember, you know, talking with him about that before is, it, you know, as I mentioned earlier, it just wasn't wasn't an option for him not to. Now, you know, I, I would love to be able to ask him that question, especially now, just, you know, reading more about Vietnam and just other conflicts that the U.S. has been involved in. I, I'd love for him to just shoot me straight and be like, hey, what, what did you really think about this? Right. But I think for him, you know, he's a very, he was a very patriotic man. And, yeah. you know, I, I think, I think he was, he was just going to do his duty, in yeah. other words. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like your father has been a pretty big influence on you. Is that fair? Yeah. Oh, most definitely, man. Yeah. I would say, you know, his, his demeanor, you know, his love of learning, certainly, especially his love of the outdoors too. Just remember, you know, as a kid, like I, I mentioned earlier, just being able to, you know, walk around the property with him and then, you know, meet a lot of, a lot of his buddies, just kind of seeing the way that they interacted kind of reminds me of how I interact with my friends too. But yeah, he was a great friend and obviously a great dad to me too. Yeah, that's great. And you had mentioned, you know, before we started recording that, unfortunately, he passed about eight years ago. Yeah, yeah. So I, I remember it really well, man. And it's it's funny, you know, I was listening to, to your podcast with Spencer Smith. He was my manager at the time when I was working at Coyote and this this had happened. So, you know, Spencer, I'll always kind of remember because it was, it was that time in my life. And obviously, yeah. he's a great friend. But... Yeah, my, my dad, you know, unfortunately, because of Vietnam, at least that's what they think, Agent Orange exposure led to cancer of the kidney. And then he he passed in, in surgery when I was, so it would have been 2015. And obviously, you know, super, super tough to go through that kind of loss when you're a young man and really getting started as an adult, right? Like graduate college and, you know, I'm 
I, I feel really grateful that he could see me graduate and that we had a, you know, really fantastic relationship, but you know, there's really no like roadmap to, to go through that kind of big loss in your life as a 23 year old. And I was really lucky or I, I'm extremely lucky to have a great mother and, and my sister's fantastic as well. But yeah, when I, I can, can give you a little bit of a synopsis of what happened. So it's December of 2014. I remember getting a call from my mom, you know, that they'd gone to the hospital and that, you know, my dad had found out that, you know, he had, he had kidney cancer. And, you know, when you get news like that, when you're a pretty young guy, I mean, I was 22 at the time, it was right before my 23rd birthday. And you don't really know how to take that kind of news. Like it, yeah. it's so surreal. And, and Jordan, to be honest with you, like my, my life up until that point was, I mean, pretty great, to be honest, you know, went to a good school, you know, played sports, had a lot of really good friends and, you know, kind of navigating the working world in Chicago, you know, working in logistics, you know, and as I'm sure you've heard, you know, it can be a little bit of a stressful in- in- industry and just kind of getting the hang of things there. But getting that news and, you know, coming home and it not really seeming real because my dad seemed totally fine, right? So a couple months pass and there's a surgery scheduled to, you know, remove the mass that was on his on his kidney. And I remember my dad's dispos- disposition that day was, was totally fine, like, you know, he just seemed pretty normal, right? And so that, there, it was a day in February. So February of 2015, I'd, I went to work and I remember my mom and sister were there at the hospital with him. It was at the University of Chicago and just, uh, you know, kind of kind of monitoring my phone all day and, you know, got the text that he was doing really well, but, you know, they had to go in for another surgery. I'm like, okay, you know, just trying to keep my spirits up, right? And working through the day certainly helped kind of keep my mind off of it. And uh, I remember I was at work kind of late that day and was, was helping, you know, get a shipment move, you know, whatever. And texting my mom, like, Hey, I'm going to be at the hospital soon. So I left work. I remember it was snowing like super hard, man. It's just one of those memories. Like you, you won't forget. It's like kind of, kind of felt weird driving to the hospital. So I get to the hospital and get in this elevator to go up to the floor where my dad was and my, and my mom. And I just remember like, dude, this, this like cloud hanging over me in the, in the elevator. Yeah. Never, never felt anything like it before or since just this, uh, you know, really odd feeling. Right. And I, I get up to the floor and, and I see my mom and, and I knew right away, you know, something was terribly wrong, unfortunately. And, you know, the, the doctors came and talked to me and they said, you know, we're, we're really sorry, but he didn't make it. And obviously really, really tough. And, and I'll never forget this. They they kind of pulled my mom and I into a room and we're trying to explain what happened and, and how we could have passed in surgery. And, you know, I remember telling them like, hey, hey guys, like I, I want to be with my mom right now. And I asked my mom, like, you know, what what could have, what happened? Like, I, yeah. it just it was one of those things. It just didn't seem real. She's like, yeah, you know, his the cancer had spread. It was inoperable and you know, he passed in surgery. So that was, uh, you know, I just remember sitting there kind of just like staring blankly. And, you know, I had my arm around my mom, of course, and, you know, not not crying or anything because it, it hadn't hit me yet. But I just remember thinking like, man, how, how am I going to like move on with my my dad passing me? He's my best friend. I texted or called him most days, whether it was like talking about the bears or talking politics. So it was, it was super tough, man. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. And, you know, you mentioned that happens at, you know, 22 going into 23, coming out of college, like not a care in the world. Like I have to imagine it's kind of like a pretty sharp wake up call, right? 
Dude, it, it really was. And that's that's really interesting that you bring that up because, you know, and I, I think, you know, you and I can really relate to this together. You know, being 22 in Chicago and you're like making scratch for the first time, like getting paychecks, like going out pretty regularly. Yeah. Like not only like Fridays and Saturdays, but, you know, potentially during the week too. And Allegedly. Yeah, yeah, right, right, exactly. I won't tell Spencer. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's funny. Something like that is a huge wake up call because... You know, I don't, I don't know. I don't think I was on the wrong path per se, but I think that really recentered me mm-hmm. to kind of focusing on what's important, right? Mm-hmm. Where I think someone that might not have had my reaction to it may have gone down the wrong path, right? Yeah. Where it's like, hey, and and hey, I think everybody has had these thoughts when you when you go through that sort of loss, you're grieving. It's like I just want to get numb to this pain, yeah. H- however I can do it, right? Like whether it's partying or you know, some, some people take, take other paths. Right. And, and for me, I would say I focused a ton of energy in it, into work and working out. That was like the two things that like kind of saved me, man, to be honest. And then, you know, I like, of course, you know, I'd still go out with friends, but I never wanted alcohol to be a, a crutch for me. Yeah. Right. Where I, I could see that happening to, to other people if, if they'd gone through that. And, and I could have seen it happening myself too. So really had to reel it in after that. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I mean, it's definitely healthy outlets you picked, right? To your point, you know, a lot of people use alcohol or, you know, even, you know, SSRIs. Sure. Killers, who knows? Yeah. No, I, I think that's a, that's a great point. And, and it wasn't, wasn't ever something I considered. And, and, and to be honest, I think talking with people about this stuff certainly helps me. And I think when it initially happened, I was I'm trying to think of the right adjective. I was, I was just like, reserved in, in speaking about it with people because you don't really know how, like there's not like a roadmap yeah. to be like, Hey dude, I, I, I really feel like shit today because you know, my dad had passed. Like, I just want to talk to someone about it. Yeah. And now that I'm older and you know, I've had a couple of friends go through the same thing, un- unfortunately, but you can kind of bond over that. But yeah, at the, at the time I was just kind of like, I wasn't even comfortable really talking to my mom and sister about it, yeah. to be honest with you. So yeah, luckily for me, I, you know, I always had an interest in, you know, athletics and then later that became working out and fitness. And, you know, I had a job that kind of required like, hey, the more you put in, the more you get out of it. I was a, you know, sales job that was commission based. So kind of just poured myself in those two outlets for sure. Yeah, for sure. And I think that, you know, it's definitely a cultural thing, especially for men, right? It's like, oh, something shitty happens there, there. That's Oh, awesome. yeah. Shake it off. Yeah. Oh, dude, totally. And I mean, you and I are roughly the same age, but just even as a kid, it's like, you know, if you're playing a sport or, you know, you fall off your bike, you know, it's just like, Hey man, like get up and like move on. Right. Like it's, yeah. but, but really, you know, emotional pain or, or feeling a certain way. It's like to, to your point, it's like, it's a cultural thing to just like, you know, you're a man, it's time to like face these things and move on. So that was kind of the approach I had. And, you know, I think looking back on it, I, I wish I would have talked about it sooner just with friends or, or family. But, you know, I think I'm at the point now where I've been, you know, I feel so grateful to have that kind of relationship with, with my father that, you know, some people don't get to have that. Yeah. And there was never anything that was left uns, unsaid. Like I loved him. We had a great relationship. So certainly thankful for that. Definitely. Yeah. That's definitely a really nice blessing. I mean, you definitely hear a lot of stories too, of like folks where, they weren't able to resolve that in this lifetime. And it's, it's interesting. Like I've got a, a good friend and she's, she's got a really strained relationship with her mom and she, you know, her mom's not too great. She's, she's told me before. It's like, you know, I, 
I know our relationship's actually going to be better when she passes, right? Because we'll be able to hold the space for one another and I can love her and as she was, as her essence is, maybe not necessarily who she was in this physical reality. Right. It's, it's interesting you bring that up too. And I've, I've told my girlfriend about this before, but there are times where I, I still have dreams about my dad mm-hmm. and it feels so real, man. Yeah. Like it's like pick up on a conversation that we'd have about, like I mentioned the bears, but we'd always love talking football or, you know, talking about the outdoors. So it's, you know, I hope one day, you know, we do meet again for yeah. sure. But it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting just having those connections where I, I wake up and it's like, damn, like I, I felt like I was just having a conversation with him. You know? Yeah. That's really interesting. I love what you say about dreams too, you know, cause I think again, in our Western culture, we kind of view them as these kind of non, not important things, right? you know, but I, I'm not so sure that they're not just another version of reality that doesn't right. get any less real per se. Right. And it's that, that definition of real or, you know, what, what we're talking about now, our, our definition of consciousness and reality. And I think, uh, yeah, I mean, there's just, and the, the funny thing about it too, I, I thought about this recently when I have those dreams, I think people's reaction would be like, Oh, I must like feel sad to like, no, that's not real. But I wake up and I feel happy because it's like, Oh, I, I, I felt like the presence of being around this, this person that, you know, I loved and adored very much, a great father to me. And, and, uh, you know, just being thankful to, to have those sorts of experience, even if it is just a dream, right. Or just yeah. a dream. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, I've really come to believe that, you know, no one ever really dies, right. A, in the, just the metaphysical sense, I believe that your consciousness continues, but even if you don't, don't believe that for the people who are still here, right. Like your, your memories, the impact you had on them, that, that never leaves. And you know, it, it continues, right? It's like that whole idea that uh, a man can never cross the same river twice because he's not the same man and it's not the same river. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, you know, a, a, another point to touch on with this too, you know, it's made my relationship with my mom so much stronger, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, it's it sucks to say that, you know, when you, when you lose something, but there is the opportunity to make another facet of your life stronger. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I think you can apply that to, to many dif- different aspects of one's life. But, you know, I've, you know, I talk to my mom or I try to talk to my mom about every day and just kind of see what's going on in her neck of the woods. And then, you know, we even talk Bears football, <laughs> which, which is great too. But yes, yeah, certainly feeling, you know, you know, feeling that connection grow stronger over, you know, such a traumatic shared experience is something that I feel pretty blessed to have. To yeah. Have. Yeah. That is really blessed. And it's cool that, you know, as you said, your relationship with your mom's gotten stronger because you hear a lot of times, you know, that kind of thing can happen and, and it tears the entire family apart and you, you know, people don't get over it ever. Yeah. I, I think, you know, I, if that were the case with my family, man, I'd, I'd be so disappointed. And, and that'd be one of those things where it's like, where do you even start to like repair it? Right. Where I think if, if people can be comfortable about talking about loss or, you know, just bridging that gap and. And it, it goes to your point earlier about, you know, it's such a societal and cultural thing in, in the West, especially to say, you know, I'm just going to bottle this up. And, mm-hmm. you know, if my family needs me, they can reach out to me instead of being proactive and be like, hey, mom, you know, if you ever want to talk about this, like I'm here for you or or, or that kind of thing. So, yeah, to, to your point, like we've just got to like it, it's just so important to, to maintain that connection. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we also have this, this weird, like almost like phobia of death in the West. Right. And it's, Oh yeah. It's, it's, it's a natural part of life. Like why, it's, why it's celebrated it? in places in the Western civil and yeah. Western hemisphere. Right. Like, 
It's, I mean, what do you, what do you think that is? Is it, is it Judeo-Christian roots that, you know, and, and honestly, I'm, I may be answering my own question here, but it, is it the fear that we don't know what happens? I think, I think that's probably that. I think that's definitely part of it. And I think that our society, I like, kind of feeds on that, but I think to me, it's a lot of it. Candidly is, is organized religion who use it as a source of control. And yes. Kind of has, you know, that, that the trickle effects are still being seen today. Because Jordan, if you don't say your prayers, like purgatory might be on the horizon for you. you know? It's like, <laughs> exactly. I, I mean, and I, and I, you know, I say that jokingly, but I think to your point, there is, there is that sense of control. And then with that comes fear that, you know, perhaps, you know, this stems from, you know, the origins of Catholicism, whatever it may be, but where, we, we've always kind of had this fear of death, right? It's like, and it's the one thing in life that's guaranteed. Like, yeah, you know, you're going to be born and it, at some point, like the end is going to happen. Right. And it's, yeah, it's reshaping that view. Right. And I don't think I'm ready for that, but it, of course, like I'm learning as much as I can to, you know, just to, you know, when it does get to the end, I don't look back on it and be like, Oh, you know, I spent most of my life being afraid of death or, or being anxious when it's like, Hey, if you, if you just trudge on, like everything's going to be okay. And then you leave a legacy or, you know, half great friendships that your memory will carry on, or, or perhaps there's another iteration of ourselves. Right. Totally. Yeah. And I think that uh, that fear of death is, is pretty, pretty prevalent in our culture, but it manifests as a lot of different, like kind of unrelated things, right? Because people don't want to talk about what's really scaring them. So they, you know, get hyper intense about their eating or about their kids' behavior, right? When it's like, what is this really stemming from? Right. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting point. Like when it, when it comes to, yeah, being, being neurotic about other things when it's like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm so fearful of this because, you know, I'm not prepared for the work I'm going to do or, you know, I've treated my body like shit for 10 years and this is how I feel where it's like, we can just kind of get a grip on what we're working on now. Maybe that fear won't be there. Right? Yeah, totally. So what do you think happens after you pass on from this life? Well, that's, that's a great question. I remember being in a, being in a class at, at Wabash and, and this was asked and the, the best answer that I heard and, and probably what I agree with Jordan, to be honest with you. So professor asks, what do you think happens after you die? And a student in the class goes, well, it'll be like before you were born. Mm-hmm. Like we we don't know. And Jordan, part of my life, I you know I really believed that we'd go to heaven. And to be honest, man, I don't I don't know what happens. I don't. I mean, there's there's so many things I read now that really open up my ideas to what could happen. I mean, whether it be we're reborn as another entity, yeah. whether whether that's reincarnation, what have you. I don't know if what my favorite version of this is if you're a Viking, you go to Valhalla and then you die, you die with your ancestors. You know, if you, that's cool. if you, if you die in battle with your sword, you go to Valhalla and you, you dine in this giant feast hall with unlimited food and drinks and, and you're with your ancestors. Right. Like I think that would be the coolest version of the afterlife is yeah. to be with all the people that you love in a, in a great gathering place. But you know, I'd, I'd have to put some additional thought. Of, I mean, what, yeah. what are you, what's your stance? Like, what do you think about it? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, before my spiritual awakening, I didn't think about it too much, right? I, I, I probably would have just said, that's it, yeah. you know? But I had a pretty profound 
experience on LSD about two years ago that that just completely changed my perspective. And like I, I experienced the realm of eternality, right? And okay. like I came away from that experience knowing in my heart that the entire universe is love and that the whole idea of death is is not real. And as I've continued to explore, you know, other cosmological interpretations, right, from the ancients, like I think that's a very common belief. So I, you know, obviously fuck knows yeah like sumerian culture that was a huge thing right like just being or i mean not only being reborn but multiple i guess universes of of existence right yeah that's that's really interesting what yeah when you had the spiritual awakening was that something you set out to do or was it just something that just happened yeah it was definitely a a really cool kind of one-two punch for me right like i uh, two weeks before that experience i came across a documentary that opened me up to metaphysical concepts like the holographic universe the unified field of consciousness and this idea and it was all related to extraterrestrial phenomenon i know it sounds like a lot no but, sure but that documentary, like it talked a lot about consciousness, didn't talk about psychedelics at all, but it, uh, it resonated as truth with me in every sense of the word. And it resonated with experiences I'd had on mushrooms before. Okay. And so like two weeks after that, I decided to just take a, a larger dose of LSD than I'd ever had before just to really explore consciousness, not knowing what would happen. And, and it just kind of shattered the glass for me. So with, with that experience, has, has there been a paradigm shift for you with just the way you view not only death, but just like your day to day. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've gotten really into like uh, Vedic philosophy since then as well. Oh, yeah. And one of the things that's like pretty prevalent in that idea is that, you know, enlightenment is not some far fetched thing that, you know, only Jesus and Buddha can achieve, right? But right. that we actually have the ability to achieve enlightenment while here on earth. And if and when we do, then our consciousness kind of transcends the next level. Right. And if we don't, then we just get reincarnated and, and try again. Were you raised Christian? So my mom's Catholic. My okay. dad's Jewish. Okay. I had a bar mitzvah. I went to Israel for birthright. But I, you know, it was one of those things that it was like more for like tradition because my parents right. very much like didn't really believe in anything that was written in, you know, the older New Testament, I'd say. Right. Yeah. I had a similar experience growing up too. Like I, you know, went to church as a kid, but you know, it was never something that was like forced upon me or anything, but yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. And, and I feel like a lot of people are age and, and even younger, it's like you, you have some sort of awakening or whether it's, you know, people might push off those beliefs and become agnostic or, or perhaps even atheist. But I think the more people read, whether it's like, Something like Siddhartha. I don't know if you've ever read that. I haven't, but I'd love to. Or Herman Hesse, or you read the Tao Te Ching, or I'm going to butcher this pronunciation, but the Bhagavad Gita. Have you read that before? Mm -hmm. I have. Those sorts of things. It's like, wait, there's there's an area in the world, you know, the Eastern Hemisphere, where almost all advancements prior to the Enlightenment came from, right? Yeah. India, China, Japan. You know, you even have some parts of Southeast Asia. You know, what what were they doing? that all these brilliant texts came out, you know, mathematics was birthed in Arabia or mm -hmm. Middle East. So much interesting culture there. It's like, what makes, you know, this religion, Christianity that, you know, was birthed in the Middle East, of course, spread to Europe, came to North America. And I just happened to be rooted in it because my parents and their ancestors who came over from Europe, like what, what mean, like when you're a kid, you don't question those things, but it's like, oh, was, is Christianity just here because of, of warring and conflict and then great migrations. It's just, I mean, I think of things in that historical sense and, you know, these migrations, but 
certainly something to think about, right? Like, yeah. Like why, I mean, I, I guess what I want to ask you is like, why do you think there's always this, not, not always, but for some people, there's this reluctance to Eastern philosophy. And I know you're interested in Eastern medicine too. Mm-hmm. What, what's your take on kind of the reluctance there? You know, I think a lot of it comes from just like colonialism, right? Sure. And just the idea that like the the white race, the, the NATO nations are the ones that have it all figured out. And if it didn't come from some nerd at Harvard, then it's, you know, worthless. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's a good point. And something I can, t- I can tie back to me that I thought really helped me. And it was something that years ago I would have dismissed as bullshit, but... I had a pretty serious back injury playing rugby and being a taller guy, I think I was just kind of more predisposed to have that injury. So I had a couple herniated discs and dude, it got so bad. We're like, I couldn't drive like, yeah. because I couldn't feel my right leg because of the sciatic pain. And there were times where like, I had a really tough time getting out of bed and dude, it was like not being able to work out or sometimes even like walk around. It was like crippling mentally. Like it was it was just one of those things where I'm like, man, what am I going to do? Like, I love working out, love being active, but dude, what, what saved me was acupuncture. Wow. Like I, I've been to, I went to five doctors, all of them recommended surgery uh-huh. and I'm thinking, okay, I'm, I'm 25 and they want, they want to fuse my back, like something. And, you know, thankfully my mom was a nurse for, for a long, long time. I remember calling her up about it and she's like, listen, like you have one back surgery, you're probably going to have multiple. And something clicked in me right away. I'm like, okay, my mom, who's been in the healthcare industry her entire adult life, you know, she, she retired when I was in college, you know, worked for 40 years in the industry. She's telling me not to get surgery. I'm like, something, something's up here. So I remember like researching, you know, saw a naturopath, which really helped. And for the first time in my life, it's, it's like, wait, someone's telling me I can fix this by stretching a certain muscle I'm like wait like they're not prescribing me something like dude it was like a totally new thing for me yeah he's like dude your hamstrings are super tight you sit at your job a lot like i'm telling you you know you do these exercises you'll feel better so i started doing certain exercises went to acupuncture physical therapy was great but you know luckily man i was i was able to avoid surgery and i i feel 100 today where you know hiking around in moab a few years ago that I couldn't even imagine doing that. Like, dude, there, there were times where like friends wanted me to visit, you know, I was living in Chicago at the time, wanted me to drive down to Indy or like fly to see him somewhere. And I, I couldn't sit that long. Yeah. So I'd get, I'd, I'd be in pain. So, you know, for me, just kind of opening my eyes to, to Eastern medicine, acupuncture, which isn't anything crazy, but taking turmeric, like ashwagandha, like things that, I never really would have thought it had been part of my life and like researching different like natural supplements to help my back. Dude, like it, it progressed and helped me, you know, with working out, feeling yeah. better, cognitive function. So I, I know it's cool to talk to you about this because I know you're into, you know, Eastern medicine and, and just non-traditional Western medicine as well. Yeah. And it's so funny because I, I haven't, you know, I didn't have an injury like that, but I've definitely had a similar journey in my evolution from Western to Eastern medicine. And Maybe not even Eastern, but just more like naturopathic, you know, holistic. Right. And it's funny because it's like, why, why would the human body like need these super refined petrochemical based pharmaceuticals, right? When for millions of years, we've evolved with the plants around us and we've evolved to have our bodies know how to heal themselves naturally, right? Like 
it, in, in hindsight, it's like, oh yeah, obviously that makes more sense right. than this whole, you know, you've got to go under the gun and cut it out, chop it up kind of thing. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And I think we're seeing, well, and especially I think after 2020, we're seeing more of a shift towards, oh, like getting sunlight and walking around outside is a lot better than like staying inside and, you know, not getting exposed to, to certain pathogens, right? And, yeah. I, and I know this isn't breaking news for anybody, but I just remember, you know, thinking about it at that time, it's like, I don't want to change my lifestyle, you know, because of COVID or anything like that. So just like staying active really helped me. And, it, and, and it's funny, man, like the studies early on with vitamin D. Yeah. It's like, why why wasn't this talked about sooner? And yeah. we know the answer to that now. At least I think you, <laughs> you and I agree on that too. But yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's certainly cer- certainly something you and I could dive in on more. But with these petrochemicals that you talked about, I mean, it's big business, yeah. unfortunately. And yeah, you know, I, I hope at some point there's an awakening for more people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think we're so conditioned to say. Oh, dude, my back hurts, or I've got this killer migraine, or you know, even more, you know, what I would consider more serious problems, mental issues with SSRIs mm-hmm. and, and that sort of thing. And, I mean, do you, do you think as a society we can ever move away from that, or, or are these companies, Eli Lilly, mm-hmm. the rest of Big Pharma, is it just too much? It's a good question. I mean, I think that we're kind of at a crossroads right now, right? And, you know, certainly after 2020 and, yeah. and the past few years, I think people have at least been open to more ideas, right? Yeah, I hope so, right? And I think that, frankly, if we don't figure out a better solution, like any any path that continues to involve the consolidation of power of big pharma, the, the restrictions on, you know, doctor independence, the censorship yes. of anyone who bucks the consensus, right? Like, I don't want to spread fear, but to me, there doesn't seem to be a path that way that doesn't lead to something relatively dystopian. I think you're right because, you know, unfortunately there's too much money involved. Lobbyists, super PACs or PACs, these, these political organizations that, you know, unfortunately if they're backed by these pharmaceuticals, it's just going to keep pushing to people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Not to your point, not to get too dystopian, but I don't know if there's really a, a path out of that because so many people are relying on this stuff already. Yeah. And it's, it's big business. It's just, you know, I, I hate to say it, but it's just the way the world works. I mean, the world goes around because of, you know, these giant companies making these massive profits, delivering for their shareholders and thus, in, you know, planting people or, you know, propping people up that can continue to promote those agendas, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you talked, uh, you know, earlier, like uh, remembering the good old days of Obama versus McCain. Sure. Here we're in 2023 and, you know, they're very good chance it could be Trump versus Biden again. Like, yeah. what do you think about the future of politics in our country? Yeah, it's it's interesting you bring this up. And I don't know, did you watch the town hall? I watched parts of it. Yeah, I did. I did too. You know, my my first thought to it is, you know, it's it's going to be 2024, and we're really going to run back to you know upper like you know 78 year old men back to back, right? And. I'll be honest with you, man, and not, you know, not to talk dystopian again, but to have a repeat of 2020, that election in 2024, I think things are just going to be even more amplified. Yeah. I think both sides are going to be even more riled up. You know, the right about election fraud, the left, you know, 
I, I don't know if there's a candidate that mobilizes voters quite like Trump, right. whether it's on the left with their contempt for him or the right with, with people loving him. Right. And it looks like it will be Trump versus Biden. I, I actually I was looking at polling numbers yesterday and it looks like Trump's 40 points ahead of DeSantis. That's wild. Yeah, it is wild. So I think, we're, dude, I think we're in for a totally wild ride. I don't know what that's going to look like if there's going to be. You know, some some sort of event in 2024 that leads to mass protests. Uh-huh. You know, we saw in 2020, obviously with the Black Lives Matter protests that politically fueled, right? Or totally, you know, and 100, percent yeah. It, that that led to you know, it was a rallying cry for the left against Trump, of course. And man, I, I don't know. It's hard to imagine Biden versus Trump again, but at the same time, it's like we're we're looking at it. Yet again. Right. Well, the thing for me is like the dirty secret of, of both polit- political parties is that no one wants someone centrist, right? Divide and no. conquer has always been how how this country runs, right? Like it's, you know, to say it's like the Dems want Trump because they want people that get riled up, right? Like that's the dirty little secret, but I honestly believe No, it. you're you're absolutely right. And I don't know when that exactly changed. If, if perhaps yeah. the social media era is kind of what did that because – we have such a divisive society now and a good analogy is like with sports, right? I don't know how many of these talk shows you watch, but everybody's going to have a hot take. Mm. Like you can't just say that Joe Burrow's a good quarterback. You have to say he's the best quarterback in the NFL and all these other guys can't hold a candle to, to his, his numbers, his attitude, that kind of thing. And I think, you know, with politics, it's a lot of the same, right? Mm-hmm. You have, you have Trump who's, his his personality is so far one way that people, I mean, he's so divisive. They either love him or hate him. He spent most of his life in these boardrooms, you know, talking to these billionaires. And just the way he talks, it it, it elicits a response out of people, yeah, right? Yeah. And Biden, to me, is interesting because he's a career politician. I believe he ran for president in 1988. Wow. 34. That's wild. Yeah. Oh, yeah, man. So it's together. really interesting. I think he, he was in the Democratic primary against, gosh, I wonder who. Probably then? No, it was even before that. It uh. was when Reagan was the sitting president. So we'll, we'll have to check okay, that yeah. out. But, dude, he, he ran for president like 35 years ago. That's <laughs> so crazy. And, and the, do you know why his polling numbers were so bad? Because uh-uh. he lied about his education. Oh, I remember yeah. hearing about that. I said, so to me, and, it, and it's funny to think of when Biden ran, because I think he ran in 04 and I think he in 08 at some point before Obama. That's right. Yeah, he definitely did. Where he was kind of dismissed as like this joke, dude. Like he was older even then, lifetime politician. So yeah. I think people kind of knew what the deal was with him. And then, of course, I know you and Spencer talked about this, but he helped pen the Patriot Act. Yeah. Which is interesting. So I don't know, man. I think. Yeah. I mean, what happened with Bernie? Like he, he had, you know, he was certainly far left of center, but I think because his ideas challenged, like you said, this, this party that wanted to have someone that kind of fell in line with what they were, what they were pushing. Yeah. He was kind of pushed out, unfortunately. So I think so, man. I think also, you know, I, I used to be a real big Democrat, right? Like I voted for Biden. I hated Trump and, you know, the, the more I've learned about our politicians, the more I don't really think there's any difference between the Democrats and the Republicans. Yeah, I think uh, a good way to put it is like a uniparty, right? Totally. Dude, all these all these politicians, they go to the same banquets. A lot of them have the same donors. Exactly. Or they'll have a donor that gives 80% to one party and it's like they get a kickback of 20% to theirs. I think 
and, and perhaps I'm wrong about this, the media presents this really partisan view. Or, and, and what I mean by this is, you know, the coverage on, on some stations may be partisan, of course, but I think a lot of these politicians get along a lot better than we think because yeah. they're all part of the same club. Yeah. Where a, a guy like an Andrew Yang or Bernie Sanders, Tulsi, um, mm-hmm. these politicians that come along and they have a really strong grassroots movement because people are like, oh, yeah, I can get down with, with what they're saying. Yeah. But then, unfortunately, they get pushed out because they're, they're a challenge to the norm. Totally. Totally. They don't control, you know, the DNC or the RNC or the media. So right. They don't get the platform that they should. Now, I think that stems from, gosh, oh, Ross Perot in 1992, because you had Bill Clinton, Democrat, running against incumbent or the sitting president, George H.W. Bush. Ross Perot comes in. He takes a, a chunk of primetime television to go over this tax plan he has. He's like, look, like, I want to I want to cut taxes. Here's my plan. He took so many votes away from George H.W. Bush. Bill Clinton won. And I think both parties at that point are like, we're not doing this again. Yeah. <laughs> right. And you fa- I think he ran again. And then you had Ralph Nader. What are some other Gary Johnson? Do you remember him? Kind of. Libertarian who ran in 2016. Jill Stein ran in 2016. Like a lot of people believed voters of Jill Stein lost the election for Hillary. Interesting. She was a Green Party candidate. And then I think in 2020, you didn't have much of a Libertarian or Green Party representation. But Jordan, what's so interesting about this too, is like a lot of other countries, not only in the West, but countries with democracy, there's like 16 parties Mm -hmm. and they'll do a runoff or the top four and then you select. But this two party thing, man, I don't I don't know, it just doesn't seem to be working. Right. Actually. Well, you're talking about the Uniparty, right? We've got, you know, a country with 330 million. Somehow these, both of our, both of our two parties, you know, lo and behold, doesn't matter what they really say leading up to the election right. once they're in power. It seems that the policies always favor the military industrial complex, the pharma, the, you know, the corporatocracy. And it's, there's always money to go fund Ukraine or Sudan or whatever yes. the next door is, but not the poor, not the homeless, right? It's right. Or, or care for our veterans, like simple things like that, that I think everyone can agree, you know, the homeless too. It's like, we can, we can make this a much better country if we're not allocating trillions of dollars to the defense budget. Yeah. Sending money to Sudan, Ukraine, which, you know, I don't know if our place in the world moving forward should be you know, to get involved in, in other conflicts. Like I think uh, this this theory, you know, that goes back way into the 1800s of the Monroe Doctrine. It's like, hey, let's yeah. let's protect our interests here in the United States in the Western Hemisphere. Or you know, Teddy Roosevelt would speak softly and carry a big stick. Mm-hmm. It's like at one point did we start becoming involved, and maybe it's because our influence grew so large, but we started becoming involved in all these other conflicts. Yeah, like. Do you, do you think there's, I mean, like with this Ukraine thing, like, is there, is there a way out for us? I mean, we're, we're giving so much money to Ukraine. The European Union isn't giving you know, maybe, I think, 20% of what we give. Mm-hmm. Why, why are we in that position? And yeah. do, you, do you think, like, there's a way out? You know, I think, I, I think there is, but it's going to take a global coordinated effort, right? It's it's not like we we the US can necessarily do that on our own, although we certainly has the most formidable power. Yeah, I think it could right. lead this the trend in that direction. But I think you know, it's something we haven't talked about, but look, let's go down the rabbit hole. I think the other Ready. element we need to think about is how compromised a lot of our politicians are. You know, and I've I've read quite a bit about Jeffrey Epstein and the blackmail that's going on, and I think it is 
absolutely mind blowing how many of our elites and politicians and, and business executives are probably on camera doing some pretty fucking disgusting things. I, I couldn't agree more with you. And it's, you no, know, what's interesting to me is like, so Prince Andrew yeah. is one of the ones, like, if he's on there, how deep does this thing go? Yeah. And why has there always been this cloak and dagger? It's like, oh, well, I mean, first, does anyone really know how Jeffrey Epstein got all his money to begin with? Like, I know there's, there's all these theories that he could have been an agent of some military or of some government, of course, yeah. right? But yeah. all we really know about him is that he went to Ohio State for a little bit, dropped out, you know, kind of went to New York City and was balling as like this this financial yeah. character of some sort. But then, you know, he's seen hanging out with dude. He's photographed with. I, I mean, obviously, you know, with tons and tons of notable celebrities, yeah. Bill Clinton, Bill Gates, right? And and they're all in these flight logs. Trump, it's crazy. Yeah, I I think to your point, I mean, how far? I mean, how far down the rabbit hole does does this go? And who's on that black book? Like. Who's who's keeping this? Who's keeping these names safe, and and to what end? And and why why would he compromise these people? Right. Like, what was Ghislaine Maxwell's role in all this yeah. too? Like, she was the procurer, but what were her marching orders from Jeffrey Epstein? Yeah. When it gets back to you know, like, look at Biden. Right. Clearly, this man is not running the fucking country. He is not running right. the free world. But then who is? Yeah. No, it's a great... Well, I can tell you it's probably not Kamala Harris. <laughs> I don't want to give, a, give away any spoilers. But I, don't, I don't think that's the case. You know, we, we have tons of, tons of corporations in this country that I think have become so powerful. And we, I, I think you and I would like to talk about this too with Twitter, um, you know, not being one of those anymore. And I think, you know, with Elon's influence and, and ownership of Twitter... Perhaps it will remain the bastion of the First Amendment. I hope free so. speech. I hope so. Certainly. But with all these massive corporations, whether it's Microsoft, mm. Apple, yeah. like are are they really running the country because of all right. the influence that they have? And you know, unfortunately with their chai ties with China. I, I don't know, man. It's it's really yeah. interesting to think about like who if there is a puppet master, like who who could it be? Right. You're right. Well, I mean, you know, you look at just the last few years of, of the pandemic, Bill Gates certainly had a, a much bigger role in global agenda setting Klaus Schwab than any elected officials, right? Yes. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, you would, you would remember what this was called. I can't think of it off the top of my head right now, but the, the like pandemic related exercise that was performed. Oh like, yeah. 2015. Event 401 or something. Yeah. That's what it was where it's, it's simulated. I think the ironic thing or coincidental thing about all this is I think it simulated a virus that came from China hmm. and coincidence. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, and I'm sure we'll get, we'll get more into this as we, as we go along here, but yeah, why are why are these these people that are heads of these organizations? They're exerting so much political influence, and they might not even be here in the United States. It's just it's really interesting to think of World Economic Forum, you know, the United Nations. Like, why are they governing someone's day to day life in the United States, or or wielding any policy decisions? Right? Yeah. Like, you you said it best. It's like okay, Biden's our president. Who's really calling the shots here? And I. I mean, I don't know if you and I will ever be privy to that information, but it's it's certainly interesting to think about. Yeah, I think we will, though. I mean, for all the scary stuff that's come to the the surface, you know, what gives me a ton of hope is like that's always been there, right? Right. Dating back to, dude, probably mm. 
you know, goes back to the 1800s. But I mean, a more interesting example, I mean, do you think about JFK, the CIA, you know, going through the 70s with, of course, like Nixon, Carter, and there's always been some sort of fuckery. But now I think it's so much more magnified because of social media, because of how interconnected we are. I could text you and be like, dude, did you see, you know, what Mike Pence said or what Kamala Harris said, where there's much more of a magnifying glass on it, where, and, and I, I really hate to say it, but like politics has become so entertaining for people. Yeah. And it's become like a hobby and a personality trait for some people too, unfortunately, where they're just so ingrained in knowing what's going on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, that's why you see the establishment freaking the fuck out after Elon bought Twitter and, you know, yes. lo and behold, defend free speech. And it's funny because before that happened, you know, Spencer and I actually like went back and forth a lot on Elon where I was I was very skeptical of Elon and you know you get into why that is and I've I've come around because of what like what his actions have proven with his right. Twitter acquisition. But anyway, point is like to I, to me anyone who is just outspokenly favoring censorship and whatever kind of bullshit language they want to want to frame it, to me that's a red flag that this is not someone you should fucking trust. Well the the thing and you touched on this with Spencer and I, I've thought about it since and it's something that I've thought about before. It's like the very definition of liberal or democracy, democrat, it's like you you want this idea these ideas, right? You want them to be in a liberal democracy where people can exchange ideas, whether you agree with them or not. To me, when when I started noticing or, or seeing and, and hearing about people getting shadow banned on Twitter yeah. or removed entirely because they said something that wasn't in line with the board or I don't I don't know how much Jack Dorsey really had to do with it. I think he kind of relinquished control at that point. But, you know, the whole point of being a liberal is like hearing different ideas and, yeah. and kind of having the forum to share those ideas. Right. And that was completely removed the last few years. So totally. I think with Elon, it's like, Hey, there's, there's a lot of people on Twitter that you and I don't agree with, but I'm open to, to hearing the conversation. Right. I think yeah. that's what makes this country great. I think that's what, you know, what will propel us forward is, is being able to have a, a conversation, even just like this, where if you and I don't align politically, at least we can, Talk about an open setting. And if you don't agree, great. If not, not a big deal. Yeah. No, I know. And that was when I'd say my real disillusionment with the Democratic Party started, right? Like, and I, I'm ashamed to say, you know, after after Twitter deplatformed Trump, like I was in favor of it. I thought he was inciting a riot. You know, obviously learned more and, and realized that's just what the, you know, the way the media portrayed it. But right. anyway, nonetheless, like fast forward to today, like when did the Democratic Party be the party of favoring censorship? Like, what are you talking about? Right. Yeah, it's it's strange to me. And I, I remember, you know, the January 6th stuff going on um, that day. And, you know, of course, all the major new news is covering it. And it's this massive event. You're like, what, what am I even watching right now? Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing on Twitter that pe- people were tweeting on, on both sides that it was it was the worst, worst day in U.S. history since 9-11. Some were calling it even worse. And that's not to condone anything that happened there. But I just remember like seeing, you know, that that Trump is a war criminal, you know, all these things that, you know, I didn't necessarily agree with. I mean, I thought what well, what happened was you know, not not very good, but just all this, you know, goes back to the hot take stuff. It's like all these crazy opinions come out yeah. and then they get retweeted. And then you're like suddenly in this echo chamber that you're like, how did I even get in here? Why am I reading these tweets? Like, right. I'm getting upset about it. 
or you go to someone else's Twitter and it's like, oh yeah, like I want more of this contact because content because this is what I agree with, right? Yeah. Um, it's just best to to see these these different views. Now, what I wanted to ask you too, because of Elon's control of Twitter, mm-hmm. will 2024 play out any differently to you? Because you'll yeah. see, you'll probably see a little bit more of you know the conservative or right wing approach, or do you think? Do you think Biden will win again? Will Biden make it? I was just curious. Your yeah, thoughts. that's a good question. I mean, a few thoughts on that. I think, Warren, I think the next year and a half are going to be absolutely bonkers. Yes. I think it's going to make 2020 look like a nursery rhyme. I agree. To be honest. I agree. With regards to Biden, I think he's corrupt. I think his son is involved heavily in human trafficking. I think Biden is most likely as well. And I, I personally have gotten to be a pretty big fan of Robert F. Kennedy. So uh, I'm going to do what I can to support him. And, and I, I think there actually is a very real chance he can make some moves. Now, that said, you know, you look at what the Biden administration can do until then, right? I mean, they're, they're talking about passing this Restrict Act. They're talking about giving full sovereignty over the U.S. to the WHO, right? And so if they hit, if they hit us with the next pandemic before the next right. election... Who the fuck knows, man? Well, I, I'm sure you remember this pretty well, but do you remember? It seemed like it came and went, but when like monkeypox was like the yeah. huge thing they were pushing, which just seemed strange because it's like, where did where did this suddenly become like the major news story? Yeah, and perhaps it was by coincidence, but it seems like that's kind of the time when people were done with masks, people were traveling again, like people were just kind of over COVID. So I didn't know if that was. You know, perhaps a way to reel people back in. Mm-hmm. Now, the scary part of all that is like, what's the next thing? Yeah, like what exactly? What could it be? And Ukraine, you know, obviously as terrible as as it is with a war going on, that to me seemed to be the next great distraction to yeah. interest rates going up, our national debt increasing, job numbers like. All, all, it's like, wait, we sent how much to Ukraine? Mm-hmm. And I mean, is, it, is, it, is it a coincidence to you? Like Hunter Biden was involved in yeah. Ukraine. So it's it's interesting to see what happens in 2024. And I agree with you completely. Like, I think this election cycle is going to make the last one look like nothing, which is saying a lot because of yeah. how divisive that campaign was. I mean, I've, I've never seen people more upset with each other here. Yeah. Like it's, it's crazy to think about. Now... I know you, you mentioned you're Robert F. Kennedy Jr. fan. Mm-hmm. What what do you like about some of his policies? I haven't had a chance to read too much into him. Mm-hmm. The only thing I see is people demonizing him for vaccines, sure, of totally. course. And but to your point, you know, you said he can make some moves. He's got the name, mm-hmm. certainly has the experience. I know he's a published author, mm-hmm. and it it seems like no. I, I know if if you're if you're interested in him, I'm curious to hear more yeah. about what what you like about him. Yeah, yeah. So I definitely, I, I first came across him two years ago. I can't remember how I first found out about his book, The Real Anthony Fauci. Right. Are you familiar with it? Yes. Yeah. But I read that and I just, so take a step back. I I was awakened to the idea that, not the idea, just the what I have come to firmly believe the reality of the fact that there is a deep state that is really the ones pulling the string. And I was introduced to that through the extraterrestrial phenomenon, the military industrial complex. Then fast forward to, I want to say it was like end of 2021. I heard Robert Malone's interview on Ro Ro. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that might've been actually where I found out about the book first. Okay. And that was like a shadow of the glass moment of, Oh, this corruption is not just the military. It's also big pharma. Then I read Robert's book and it's like, Oh, the guys behind the military are the exact same as the guys behind big pharma. And that kind of, you know, it's anyway, sure. 
But uh, you know, the fact that that Robert Kennedy stuck his neck out and said, "This is bullshit. What's going on in the pandemic?" Bill Gates, Tony Fauci are not fucking heroes. These guys are bad guys. The science doesn't make sense. The money is what's driving all of this. So I think his his willingness to stand up and then you know, like you said, he's he's a Kennedy, right? He said. The CIA killed fucking JFK. Like, let's let's not yeah. let's not mince words, right? And it's only gotten worse since then. Like, if there's anyone that I think has the chance to break through the bullshit, I, I think it could be him. Yeah, that's that's interesting to me. And I and I knew I, I saw somewhere on Twitter yesterday he was on a podcast talking about the vaccine. And I knew when I read the replies, I didn't listen to the interview, and I and I certainly will after this, but. Yeah. People are like, this guy's a quack. He's crazy. What's wrong with his voice? I'm like, oh, this guy's probably onto something. <laughs> this many people are like hating this guy. So, yeah. I mean, how would that, I don't know enough about the process because Biden is the sitting president. Yeah. Like what, what could make him, like would Biden have to resign for RFK Jr.? That's a good question. Like, I guess if RFK won the Democratic primary, yeah, maybe Biden could. could win as an independent, run as an independent potentially. Right. I would imagine he probably wouldn't. I think uh, I think what's more, not more, more likely, but, but more possible, I guess, is that Biden wins the Dem primary, but then Robert F. Kennedy runs as, a, as an independent. Yeah, that would make sense to me because his views overall are pretty centrist. They are, yeah, seems, for sure. Right? What were some of his talking points initially about, about the vaccine? Like, I know you, yeah. you said you read the book and yeah, yeah. certainly something I'd like to read, but what, yeah. what, what like were your big takeaways? Yeah. I mean, so I'll tell you, I was super pro vaccine. I got the first three COVID vaccines and, you know, the more I've learned, I, I, I don't think vaccines are nearly as safe as they've been made out to be, right? You trace the history back to like the late 80s. They passed the, what's it called? It's like the Vaccine Liability Injury Act or something like right. that, which basically removes... Protects the big corporations. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Removed all liability from big pharma. And you see the number of vaccines has skyrocketed since then. The WHO is talking about they've got like 300 new ones in development. No kidding. Chelsea Clinton's talking about we need to get all the big catch-up where we got to give all these babies vaccines. Like... It, uh, I, I mean, look, like I, people call him an anti-vaccine, but he's like, I'm pro safety. And, and a lot of these vaccines just don't have long-term safety testing. They have right. all kinds of toxic chemicals that we're not looking into. So I think it gets back to big pharma. It's like, right. Like we, we all know big pharma is corrupt and they pay for our media. They pay for our politicians. That should be another, you know, warning sign. Yes. Yeah. Why is it that we defer to them that, oh, it's a new vaccine. It's safe. So we're, we're if you say anything against it, you're a fucking wackadoo. Oh, dude, a hundred percent. So I, I never got vaccinated because I had COVID pretty early on. Uh-huh. And I remember everybody was getting vaccinated. I'm like, man, maybe, like, maybe I should. Like, I don't, I don't really know. But I remember thinking early on, I'm like, wait, if I've had COVID. <laughs> yeah. I shouldn't get vaccinated against something that I've already had. Like it was perhaps it's not apples to apples comparison, but like thinking about chicken pox, like I had that, like, I don't need a shingles vaccine right. because I already have the. No, but I mean, you're absolutely right. Right. Like yeah. why is natural immunity not a more important part of the conversation? What about vitamin D? What about yes. the suppression of ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine? There's yes. tons of stuff. Yeah. The hydroxychloroquine stuff is interesting. I mean, remdesivir or whatever, mm-hmm. but dude, I remember early on when I would like people would ask me if I was vaccinated and like, it, like people would look at me like I was crazy. Yeah. So I'm like, Oh no, like I had COVID. Like I had to justify it to yeah. them 
when I should have just been like, no, I'm not getting a vaccine. And that would have been me. I would have been giving you dirty haze, like, oh, you didn't get vaccinated. You asshole, you're putting me in danger. Well, that My was grandma, blah, blah, blah. That was always the thing where it was like, hey, even if you had it, had, have had COVID, you know, do it, get the vaccine to protect your grandparents, protect your family, your neighbors who, who might be immunocompromised. And, you know, my mom, who's in the healthcare field forever, I just remember, you know, she's she was in her early 70s when, when COVID started, 74 now. But I remember she didn't get it. I'm like, wait, if, if a nurse I know very well, you know, my mom isn't getting the vaccine and her friends that she worked with for many years, including doctors, weren't like, why, why would I? But dude, do you remember when it, it became such a phenomenon where people were like, did you get Pfizer? Did you get yeah. Johnson and Johnson? Yeah. Like people were like posting about it. And that's when I'm like, I'm done with Instagram. Yeah. It was like right around that time where I'm like, this has become such a strange divisive issue where like, I mean, even places here in, in Denver weren't allowing people into the bars if you weren't vaccinated. Yeah, I remember. It was really strange. And, and honestly, man, I would have gotten the vaccine, but I had COVID. And then the more I learned about it as we went on, I'm like, oh man, I'm pretty glad I, <laughs> I didn't get it. And you look at a, a guy like you or me, you know, relatively healthy, yeah. spent a lot of time outdoors. You know, we're not, we're not the ones that needed to worry about it. And, right. I, and I'm thankful that people like yourself and, and others have come around to it. And it was never for me a matter of being anti-vaccination, anything like that. It was just like, no, dude, I had COVID. <laughs> like, right. there's, there's no reason for me to, to get vaccinated. So I, I don't know, man. I mean, what's... Like how many how many boosters were out before <laughs> they declared that the pandemic was over? Because remember, yeah, it was I think late 2021 when the first boosters rolled out. I think that's right. Yeah, and then there was a second, and then I lost track. <laughs> yeah, I I'm pretty sure my parents have had four shots at this point, maybe okay. five. Okay, yeah, and I think there were some countries that had even additional boosters. Like, that sounds right. Yeah. So what, what have you learned that like really besides like big pharma, like yeah. were, were there some like health effects that you learned about from yeah. vaccination? Yeah. Let's see. So I actually just listened to another podcast with Robert Malone and Aubrey Marcus from like two months ago. Okay. And he gets really in the weeds with all of it, but basically he talks about how, you know, the spike protein just tears up the blood brain barrier or not blood, the the blood barriers, I guess, in your cells, right? right. You know, he, he called, he's like, we shouldn't call it a vaccine. It doesn't prevent <laughs> the right. transmission yeah, of disease. It like it's ex- inoculation. Yeah, it's like experimental gene therapy, exactly. I think is what he called it. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, he was like, the reason that my recommendation when I first found out about this was to say, hey, we shouldn't focus on vaccine. We should focus on other therapies is because we've never before created a vaccine for coronaviruses because they mutate too quickly. And that's the exact same thing with COVID, right? Big pharma for them. They're like, well, that just means more vaccines. Exactly. Yeah. Be a good boy and and get more vaccines. Yeah. Yeah, That's, yeah. It's really interesting how the immediate focus with like project warp speed, which was like getting the, getting the vaccines rolled out to the public. To me, it was, it was more of like a psychological factor, right? Right. People could be like, Oh, if, if, we get vaccinated, like we can go out public again and like the economy will get back to where it was. People can get back to work. I don't know at one, at some point it took on, it became like this monster where you'd see it. I mean, you still see it on TV or maybe not now, but like be like commercials during games. It's like, have you gotten vaccinated? Like everybody in the Denver Nuggets has, why haven't you? It's like, 
why am I getting lectured about this right, right here's now? Here's Questlove and John Legend and Pink telling you yes. to get vaccines. And what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah, that that was a bit of a red flag to me. I'm like, why is all this? And I, have, <laughs> I guess I've always naturally been a little bit contrarian to some mainstream stuff. I, you know, I'm not boasting about it, but sure. I remember with that, I remember thinking, you know, why is Elton John telling me to, to get vaccinated? And I don't know if you remember, do you remember like Aaron Rodgers when he yeah. came out and said, he didn't get vaccinated. And dude, people were like, they, they're they like, we need to take the MVP award yeah. away from him. He shouldn't be allowed to play. And he ended up getting COVID. And then he was back the next week and, you know, totally fine. I mean, this is right. a, this is a great athlete. You know, right. Obviously had access to treatments and that kind of or thing. Or looking like Rogan, right? They're like, oh, he took a horse dewarmer. Yeah. Well, was that, was, that was probably the craziest one because people kept repeating that phrase. Yeah. Horse dewormer, ivermectin, like... Joe Rogan, you know, there were even those memes of him like transforming into a horse. Like <laughs> people just wanted to demonize the guy. And, you know, Rogan, that's another thing that's kind of taken on, you know, it's it's become this phenomenon where now he's labeled as a as a right wing zealot. Yeah. When five years ago, it's like, this is like a cool liberal dude who's just like smoking yeah. weed with his friends. Like MMA. Like- yeah. yeah. It's, like, <laughs> it's like, this guy's great. Like, likes MMA, you know, knows a lot of like trivial knowledge about movies. Like the conversations are always great. And then at some point he became this right wing figure for some right. reason. And do you, right. do you think that was kind of spurred because of the COVID stuff? Definitely. I think that was a yeah. lot of it. I think as people started to see how much bullshit the mainstream media was, you know, that it just was a self-inflicted wound. And they're like, Oh, this guy Rogan is actually telling the truth. Right. And then, you know, he has guys on like Peter McCullough and Robert Malone and just, it's like, Whoa, this guy is actually telling the truth, which like, that shouldn't be that shocking. But when you compare them to the likes of Rachel Maddow and Anderson you know, Sean Hannity and Stephen Colbert and Jimmy Kimmel, you're like, Oh, these guys are all fucking talking heads for for, for, for Pfizer. <laughs> right. right. Jordan got so mad he threw the guitar. <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's just like, it's like these guys are fucking all bought paid for by Big Pharma. And boom. You know, Tucker Carlson says something about that and a few days later he's fired. Right. That's that's an interesting one too. And, and to your point about Rogan, the guy has so much money. He doesn't give a fuck what he says. Yeah. And I'm sure the Spotify deal... There are probably there might be certain things that are in that contract for him, and if he's getting two hundred fifty million, I, I would understand that. But it's so interesting to me that in twenty twenty to to now, or you know, in the middle of it too, his podcast was bringing on people that actually were telling the truth. Mm-hmm. Like I really liked when Rhonda Patrick was on there. It's like, look, like you know, vitamin D is really important, sunlight exposure, light exercise, sauna, like all things that we knew that would keep you healthy. Instead of saying, hey, like you need to stay home, consume more Netflix, like don't go outside, you'll get people sick when like we, it goes to your point earlier, it's like we kind of knew all along what was right and that's, you know, being outside, being with friends, Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. Jordan, you might get COVID, but chances are you're going to be, you're going to be okay, right? Right. And that's also, I think, what has caused a lot of people to, to wisen up, right? Like you look at, you know, the bullshit they feed us like, oh, we have to stay inside and lock down for public health. That's the rationale. Dude, but such a draconian measure, man. Like, yeah. Do you, do you remember? I mean, I'm sure you do, but just two weeks to stop the spread. Right. Exactly. And it's like, hey, like, actually, this might be another month. Kept going and going. Some, some of the you know, loosen up a little bit. Then we have an Omicron variant. Then we have the Delta variant and then the Zeta. Like it just kept going and going yeah. where I think even a lot of people who are, you know, really 
staunchly against or staunchly for lockdowns. I think they even wised up to it. They're like, yeah, you know, why why do we keep going through this this act of locking down? And yeah, like I heard a crazy stat that like I think the average life expectancy dropped like five years. Right, people gained an average of like thirty pounds. Mental health rates skyrocketed. Oh, drug overdose skyrocketed. What the fuck of that is public health? Like, what are you talking about? Fauci? Right. I mean, think think about. I mean. Like I was luckily out here in Denver when the pandemic happened, but mm-hmm. dude, could you imagine like being in Chicago, like cooped up in a, in a yeah. one bedroom apartment or a studio where it's, you know, you're already in a city where it's like, you might not get a lot of natural light because of your living conditions, but you know, you're stressed out working some job from home. You don't have a lot of space. So dude, yeah, it's like, of course, suicide rates are going to go up. People are going to be depressed. Like they're, they're zooming their family members over Christmas. Like, mm-hmm. dude, I remember that, that Christmas like people were not going home and because they were being told like they couldn't. And that's not to say like the virus wasn't spreading and people could get very sick. But I mean, people like lost on a great opportunity to spend time with family, with friends. Mm-hmm. And it's like all because we're imposing these draconian measures to like keep people locked down. And like, what was the point of that the whole time? Yeah. Like Australia stayed locked down forever. Meanwhile, like and I'm sure you've read a lot into this too. Sweden was just like, Let's just let it ride and see what happens. And far happier society. People can make arguments against that too. They're like, oh, it's a very homogenized society. People follow a different routine. It's like, well, why didn't the U.S. at least give that a shot early yeah. on, right? Yeah. yeah. A lot of a <laughs> lot of things that don't make sense with the decisions that were made. Yeah. I, what what could be the next uh, the next big thing that you know? Twenty twenty, we had this election. Yeah. Obviously, a lot of protests yeah. we had the covid obviously the pandemic like what could be coming in in 2024 you think we're gonna have yeah probably the most divisive election in our history is is it getting involved in sudan is it another pandemic could it be something you and i i know you've talked about this in a podcast with spencer yeah, but yeah. you accurately predicted the ufo thing mm-hmm. when you said this will be this will take over the news People will be drawn to this red herring. I wonder if we have something like that happen again. Yeah, I think so. I think for me, most likely, well, I mean, I think it's a few things that are kind of, you know, we're being pushed towards, right? I think one is certainly World War Three. you know, some hot conflict between us and Russia, which let's be honest, we're, we're already there. Right. It's just, it's just continuing to escalate. I think another pandemic and if, you know, if the, if the WHO, this new treaty is passed, like what we're doing is we're taking the WHO from being an advisory agency who offers guidance to one that has legally binding sovereignty over the United States. Like, and it's crazy that people aren't talking about this, but I didn't, I didn't even know, know about this. So it's crazy. What, who, like who pushed this? I mean, is it the yeah. Biden administration or like the secretary of health? Like, Biden administration. Okay. And what, yeah. why do they want to relinquish control to that? Is it just because of the pandemic? Like, so, yeah. So basically like, I think the last WHO treaty was signed in like 2004, okay. a few months ago, February, they proposed amendments to the treaty, which would like, I mean, it's, it's literally just straight out of 1984, right? It, it gives them full sovereignty and the next pandemic and they, it gives them broad, powers for censorship for surveillance for shutting down like i mean it's 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 crazy man and you know the worst part of all that is like it you know enough people may talk about it after the fact because they finally get the news that this happened 
and there's no rolling that stuff back. Yeah. Like it's not like the WHO is going to relinquish any of this control. Yeah. And I think we learned a lot of that during COVID, right? Like there, there are certain civil liberties that we have that were slowly rolled back mm-hmm. things that, you know, we might not ever get back. Right. Yeah. Like just monitoring. I mean, everybody knows their phone is listening to them at, <laughs> exactly. all, at yeah. all times. Like, and you know, Snowden was the one to expose this and expose Verizon, AT&T, but I mean, we're constantly being surveilled. Yeah. Right? And I don't see that going away at any yeah. time. I mean, just think like 1984, like really how far are we from this sort of dystopian, right? You know, everyone lives in cities. You know, we're all in these apartments. You go to your job, you punch in on your computer, you take a token, whatever the this dystopian society looks at. It's like, I hate to say it. I mean, are we really that far away from right. that sort of reality? Right. And like, are you familiar with David Icke by chance? I'm not, no. So he's been probably one of the most like notorious conspiracy theory guys okay. you know, for decades. But the longer he goes on, the more his shit has proven true. Really? Yeah. And, and I... I don't want to misstate, but I I think his interpretation is that, you know, we're ha- we're being pushed towards World War III. We're going to get into this hot conflict. And then, boom, we've got E.T. false flag, which is really reverse engineered deep state raft, which is used as a as a red herring to force us into one world government and permanent police state. Yes, I actually have read a little bit about that, that theory. And I'm, I'm sure it was him, too. But it does seem we are heading towards this whether it's the decline of America as we know it mm. or some sort of reset mm-hmm. on, on multiple levels. And, and perhaps what kicks that off is a global conflict, whether that's with China, with Russia, like you said, we're already involved with Ukraine. It could be something as simple as China invading Taiwan. Yeah. We get involved somehow or the Strait of Hormuz in the Middle East. Yeah. There's some sort of blockade blocks the flow of oil. You have a massive conflict in the Middle East because of it. Man, there's it just it's scary to say, but it feels like there's so many trigger points throughout yeah. the world that that could drag us into a potentially major, major conflict. And like you said earlier, like the military industrial complex rolls on, man, like mm-hmm. Boeing, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, like these companies. War is great business for them. Yeah. And it's unfortunate, but it's it's the reality of it. Yeah. But I think also, you know, like we were saying earlier, what gives me great hope is like, that's always been the case. Now we're just waking up to it. And we have the communication platforms to say, these guys are fucking lying, right? Emperor has no clothes. Let's catch him with his pants down. And we're not doing that. Right. No, that's, that's a good point. I'm really curious to see what America looks like 50 years from now. Yeah. the, The advancements that we've had in technology. I mean, just think, think like, your parents and your kid, them explaining like Twitter used to you when you're like eight right. years old. Or it's like, yeah, you can like watch movies on this phone. It's like, wait, I can call people from it too? Like it just seemed so far in the future, probably for us as kids to have all these advancements that we have now. Like just think how much things are going to change, Yeah, you know, once we get there. Yeah. Of course, right? I agree, man. And like – I think, you know, again, it's it's not a coincidence that all our movies are these kind of like dystopian artificial intelligence taking yeah. over the world. But I, I I think the total opposite. I think we're our future is gonna look much more like Star Trek, right? Where we're a peaceful, spacefaring civilization. I think we're gonna have as crazy as it sounds today, I think we'll have open communications with extraterrestrial civilizations and and learn that we are not here to be fucking hamsters in a wheel working right. for a machine, that we are much more than 
than animal five senses, right? That we are spiritual entities, that we are here to learn about the, the true nature of reality, to evolve our consciousness and to live in peace and harmony with the rest of this cosmos. That's uh, now, if anything will give us hope, <laughs> that's, that's certainly it, right? It's, uh, you know, that there is more to, to this life than yeah. simply being a human being or, or a cog in the machine. Like I always think of the matrix, like having this, dysto- this, I mean, utterly dystopian take on, you know, you are just a part of the system, yeah. your number. And I think it's, it's easy for everybody to get bogged down in, in that sort of reality or this sort of hypothesis that that's what's coming. But, you know, it's, you know, it's best for us to remain hopeful and, and yeah. keep our eye on the horizon for, for what is coming that will be great for, for us as a civilization. Yeah. I, ha- I heard something really cool on a podcast recently where they're saying that matrix, like that word actually comes from the Latin for mother. Okay. And this idea of the matrix is really just higher dimensions, right? The th- like we live in this very dense, very limited three-dimensional reality. Right. But these higher realities that where, where our essence come from, like that is who we really are. We are much more than just these physical beings locked in a body for a hundred years or so. Right. That's speaking of the matrix. I always think this is really interesting, but you know, who directed the matrix, the, the Wachowskis, yeah. that several years ago, they both became women. Yeah. Which I, I thought was really interesting. And what I was thinking about, it's like, I wonder if they've thought so much about reality and perception, gender, that their like their entire worldview shifted and it changed yeah. like changed them and I could see that it had such a profound effect on them because obviously they're they're brilliant people that it had such a profound effect that it, it literally changed their physical sense or their That's physical really sense of being yeah. yeah it's like they they saw in the the wardrobe like Chronicles of Narnia yeah and they couldn't unsee it yeah and they just they knew their worldview and their physical sense and emotional sense was was changed because of all the research they did with the matrix or maybe yeah. they just, they were connected to some sort of other reality as well. But it's, yeah. I mean, that movie, it brings up so many different themes, but like just, just thinking about how someone could literally change because of the knowledge that they know is, is interesting to me. It really is. Are you in astrology at all? I'm not. No, I, I don't know a whole lot about it, to be honest with you. Like I've, you know, know my sign, but I don't know anything else about it. What, what spurred your interest in astrology? Yeah. Well, the reason I bring that up is I think, you know, what, you know, 2012, like people thought the world was ending. Yeah, my, the end of the Mayan calendar, December exactly. 21st. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's right. yeah, yeah, it's actually my birthday. Oh, <laughs> interesting. Yeah, it's like, oh, the world's going to end on my birthday. Yeah. Matt, <laughs> are you just slugging back for years? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but what I've heard is that actually that was much, that was more of like a, a changing of the age, right? And so as you think about the signs of the Zodiac, I'm totally going to butcher this, but there's the Zodiac that was where the, so there's the Zodiac of the month where you were born, but there's also a much bigger cycle called the procession of the equinox, okay. which is like a 25,000 year cycle and for, and in each, and and the sun is like in a quadrant or in a constellation for like 2,000 years. Okay. So anyway, I think that 2012 was a turning point from us moving from, I think it was cancer into now the age of Aquarius. And Aquarius is known to have very androgynous male and female characteristics. So I think that's also playing into this kind of rise in masculine and feminine energies and maybe right. causing a lot of the confusion perhaps that's, that's leading folks to to become transgender i i know uh, people bring this all up all the time when they talk about transgender but even like in in roman tor- towards the end of roman civilization there was yeah. like this fixation on gender 
Same with the Greeks. Mm. I don't really know what causes that in a, in a society, but it's really interesting to think about like what at some point is, is it because vampires aren't warring with other nations and then they took, take a look within to, yeah. you know, not only how they govern domestically, but they take a look at everything, right? Yeah. How institutions are run, how people behave, gender, certainly something interesting to think about, but your your point where so this age is more of a so androgynous meaning both male and female characteristics yeah exactly does that project onto like other aspects in this world too do you feel like yeah. like with warring or peaceful times definitely and i think that i think it gets biblical too right like and, and like when we hear about these ideas of the apocalypse like i think that what Christ and, and Hermes and Thoth before him were predicting is exactly what's happening right now, right? The end of an age, but it's it's not the end of the world, right? It's actually, in fact, an unveiling of the darker side of humanity, of what's really going on within the military industrial complex, but as a way for us to transcend into what comes next and what's, what's frankly better. Right. That uh, The point about the military industrial complex is interesting because I think we've had stark warnings, you know, throughout our history about it. And I believe, I believe it was Dwight Eisenhower, who was one of the most decorated generals. He's one of the only five-star generals in U.S. history. When he was leaving office as, as president, he issued a warning to yeah. us saying, like, you know, let's, let's be careful about foreign conflicts. You know, these, it's, it's basically what he said is like, war is big business, right? Totally. And I'm curious, like, will we, Will there be a politician? And maybe maybe it was Trump because we weren't involved in, in as many conflicts. Maybe that's why the deep state or, you know, big government doesn't, you know, like Trump because he did expose us yeah. to some of that, right? Yeah, no, like whether people love him or hate him, I think he did pull the curtain back yeah. on some of this bureaucratic, you know, this gridlock that we always have in Washington, people getting paid, like like he at least said, like, hey, this is how deals get done, where it like opened off a lot of people's eyes, where it's like, wait, like, this guy's trying to run the country like a business. It's like, well, kind of is. <laughs> it's, it's big business for a lot of people, unfortunately. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. And, you know, I, I still don't trust Trump. I think he right. is more likely than not an actor of the deep state as well. But, you know, like I, I voted for Hillary in 16 and I've learned about her. I, frankly, I think she's pure evil. Like I've heard... You remember Anthony Weiner when, you know, he got oh, busted? We should talk more about him. But, yeah. but of course, yeah, because he was, I mean, he was into all kinds of weird shit. Exactly. He got busted with, like, tweeting a, a girl, right? Well, that's, that's you know, that's the limited hangout, right? Okay. What I think actually happened was much, much worse. And I've, I've heard that the New York police officers who, like, found his computer, which similar story to, like, the Hunter Biden laptop, right. where it just had all kinds of horrific pedophilia who knows what else but one of the things that's rumored and look like I, I i i've been down some rabbit holes so i don't speak to the accuracy of any of this but i've heard some pretty disturbing things about what hillary clinton was doing at, at jeffrey epstein's island and adrenochrome is some real shit it's not it's really? not conspiracy theory nonsense yeah and that's the like isn't that a like a part that's taken from blood yeah exactly so i think i think it's in the pituitary gland. Okay. When you're really terrified. Your blood makes like adrenaline. Yes. Crow. But like, but you have to to get it. You have to basically get the pituitary gland out immediately. So you have to like be present, basically, as right. as people are getting murdered. So that goes back to like 
the Moloch, like Bohemian exactly. Globe. Exactly. Yep. Yep. All these. Baphomet. Yes. Who's, who's an androgynous transgender yes. that's, character. That's an excellent point. Like, is does this all, you know, it's because when you tell people about this stuff, it's like, oh, that's just a silly ancient. Totally. Ritual. Like, you know, you read this on Wikipedia somewhere, but it's like the Aztecs were doing, you know, sure. human sacrifice. The, the Romans, the Egyptians. Ago. What's to say that these sort of esoteric, you know, really strange, you know, to us rituals aren't still going on? Like, does anyone really know what was going on at Bohemian Grove still? Right. People have tried. I mean, what what's discussed at Bilderberg Group? What was mm-hmm. being discussed at Epstein's Island? Like, like I, I want to ask you, like, what what all... I mean, at Epstein's Island, do you think it was just recording people to get blackmail, to influence mm-hmm. political decisions, war, the exchanging of money between nations? Like, what what do you think was going on? I think all kinds of disgusting things. I think yeah. all that. I think I think murder. I think sacrifice. I think adrenochrome harvesting, organ harvesting, and not just not just Epstein's Island. I mean, I think that was definitely like a a hub for it, at least for a lot of the elites. But you know, I think it's. It's happening all over the world, unfortunately. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. The more I mean, you mentioned Hillary, but like, yeah, the more you look into that stuff, it's like this is these people are super seedy, man. And, and to your point, while I don't know if if Trump could be trusted, I I certainly couldn't trust Biden with all these totally. connections to Ukraine, no. China. The Hunter Biden stuff is is really strange. The more you look yeah. into it, too. Yeah. Have you heard of Kathy O'Brien? No. So no. so I actually learned about her story from David Icke, but she allegedly was in, basically was sold into MK Ultra as a child. Whoa. Her, her father was a rampant pedophile, raped her from, you know, day one, basically. And she lived, she lived like almost 30 years in Project MK Ultra. And she's, she's been testifying openly for almost 30 years now against Bill and Hillary, against George H.W. against Dick Cheney against Jared Ford. Exactly. Of course not. Because they also control the attorney general, right? She's talked about Bill Barr. I'm trying to remember. Anyway, how how, how the AG, who has always been part of the deep state, is able to quash this all under national security. So you you initially heard about this through David Icke? Yeah, exactly. Because he he had talked about it, but... Everyone else is she's just silenced to it, or they dismiss her as a crazy person. Exactly. Right? So what was what were some of the things she was saying? Is that she was around these political figures? Yeah, and they were you know doing sinister things. Exactly. Like, man, that's that's pretty terrible stuff. Yeah. Now, how long did MK Ultra run for that we know of? So I think it was allegedly shut down in like the early seventies. Okay. But I I think it's still going on. I think so too, and. You know, people are like amazed and you're like, yeah, Charles Manson was part of that. Like he was hired or well brought on to be part of these experiments that kept going and going. Oh, what's that great book? I'm sure you've read it all about the MK Ultra and the CIA. Chaos? That one? Yes. I uh, haven't yet, but I need to. Yeah, that's what it really, I mean, it just kind of uncovers like how deep this goes, like the initial planning with it all. And I think you're right. Like this, this sort of stuff, this mind control it's still going on. We just don't know. Yeah. Like it's is, crazy, man. Is it happening with social media? Like yeah. with algorithms, with TikTok, Instagram, like all these things are doctored to elicit some sort of response to you. Like who says that isn't part of the game as well, right? Yeah. You know, and it's funny you bring that up. And I listened to the author's interview on Rogan who wrote yes. Chaos. Tom O'Neill. That's how I heard about it. Yeah. Okay, cool. And he mentioned, do you remember the part where he's talking about he was going to meet with the senator who he thought was involved yes. and then got scared and didn't. Right. 
funny enough, I was reading Kathy O'Brien's book at that time. And that exact character shows up in one of the scenes where she's being raped by Dick Cheney. It's fucking Dude. crazy. Yeah. You want to talk about a guy with some, yeah, just a, a guy with terrible connections and, you know, perhaps, you know, I haven't read enough into it, but there's certainly dots that can be connected with his involvement with us going to Iraq Halliburton connections, of course, but I don't know, man, the, the George W. Bush administration just all around, you know, we, we start with 9-11, we immediately go to Afghanistan and Iraq to, you know, stop terrorism, you know, at, at the end of this, the result is, you know, we, we just made the Taliban stronger. You know, we have a, a stronger, group that now controls Afghanistan that we don't have any say in. And, and Jordan, I, I, you know, we talked about Western versus Eastern points of view also. Glad you brought that out. But it's interesting to me, the U.S., we go to Afghanistan and Iraq to instill democracy to a group of people, especially in Afghanistan, where it's always been a very regional, people live in the mountains, people farm, that kind of thing. We always, or we, we tried to instill democracy in a place like this. And it's like, to what end? Like all yeah. of the all the nine eleven hijackers were trained in Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. but we didn't want to mess with that because of our connections and oil and that kind of thing. But I'm going on a rant here, but just thinking about Dick Cheney and the Bush administration's yeah. connections and, and how we got involved, it's all it's all very strange to me. Exactly. Certainly. Yeah. There's a lot of a lot of a lot of parts of the official narrative that don't don't make sense. Arlen Specter is the guy I was thinking That's of. That's right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to read read that book for sure. We can talk about it again at some point. Yeah, you should read this one too. It's wild. This is Kathy's book. Okay. Yeah. Where so you where did you pick this up at? It's on Amazon. Like it's 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 all out there, right? It's just uh, you got to know where to look. So I, I just pulled up the Kathy O'Brien's book, Transformation of of America, and what we were mentioning earlier. So Tom O'Neill's the guy who wrote the Chaos book. That's right. And in that Rogan interview, he talks about you know I almost met with Arlen Specter. I like he came across his name in some materials, and then he ended up bailing because he was afraid that you know he frankly might get assassinated. Right. right. And he's like, almost. yeah. So Specter is dead now, but he's like. He's like, oh, I probably just, just, you know, I probably should have gone, blah, blah, blah. Well, I, I think he should not have gone. And here's the part in, in uh, Kathy's book where she talks about it. So, my friend and I were photographed together for Larry Flint's commercial photo, photo- – sorry. My friend and I were photographed together for Larry Flint's commercial pornography publications and featured in the illicit films that contributed to funding CIA covert mm-hmm. operations. In addition to this, she and I were able to spend two weeks together when her husband slash handler traveled to Houston's farm in Tennessee for instructions on handling his new bride. I was maid of honor for my friend's wedding, which was no more a marriage than mine to her husband, Houston. As was customary with Project Monarch slaves, her marriage to her handler equated to marriage to her mind control owner, U.S. Senator Arlen Specter. The wedding I was forced to participate in was for pornography purposes only, and it took place in Arlen Specter's Connett Lake House in Pennsylvania. Specter's stone house was located in a wooded, remote setting and was masculine in decor. Side rooms were either designated for perverse sex or were furnished with antiquated NASA virtual reality and programming equipment. The musty smell of Specter's playhouse was overpowered by the scent of roses, which he symbolically presented to his slave on their wedding day. Man. What year was that? 95. Okay. 
Now there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. Well, she published this in 95, I think. I don't know when that event took place. How old is she now? She's pretty old now. So she was 30 when she got rescued out of MK Ultra, And I want to say that was like late 80s. Okay. So she was very young when this initially. Yeah. Was she was sold in at like age six, I think. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It makes you wonder how much more of this is going on. How many people are affected, right? Yeah. So pornography funding the CIA. Yeah. Like what do you think pornography could be part of the deep state? Like Definitely. mind control? I think so too. Yeah. I think th- there's just so many aspects of like things that are part of mainstream culture that, and unfortunately por- pornography has be- become something that is consumed by a lot of men. And, and I think women yeah. too, that it, it's, it is like a mind control. It, it doles people. I think it like, there's, there's something to be said about like getting, you know, being, being present, having real human relationships, but doing that, it's like the easy way out for people. Mm-hmm. Perhaps they're lonely. You know, I, I think, yeah, pornography is certainly an aspect of mind control. Yeah, and I think it's it's also like a, a feeder into, you know, human trafficking, child sex abuse. Like I had my friend Paul Hutchinson on a few months ago, and he, he's been on over 100 undercover missions to foreign countries to rescue Whoa. kids out of human trafficking. And he's like, yeah, and, you know, he's like, I meet these Johns, and they all tell me the same story, right? Like where, you know, they were never into kids, right? And then... They got addicted to porn and then that Damn. just led them to start looking for child porn and they, you know, they got younger and younger. Do, and yeah. Do you think it's, person. it's just never enough for some, like some of these rich and powerful, like, cause you always hear, when you hear about the Jeffrey Epstein stuff and like with minors, it's like, what, what would make someone do that? Is it just this perverse where they've just, they keep going down and down and it gets so like. I don't even know the word to describe it. Just perverse that that's yeah. the only thing that they're into at that point. Like, I guess so, man. It's crazy. It's crazy. It really is. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't even know what else to say about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, I think we've gone down that the rabbit hole <laughs> yeah. today. What about, uh, let's talk, let's talk a little bit of history, right? Like sure. that's something that you're super into as well. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to, man. So I, I want to ask you like, what, what's, what's your interest level in history or like, yeah. You know, I've always been into it. I don't know. I don't necessarily know why it's been something that's resonated. Although, as I've learned more about about astrology, I'm an Aquarius. Sorry, and Sagittarius. And Sagittariuses are known to be like historians, to be teachers, right? Okay. So I think that certainly that makes sense. To it. <laughs> that's that's cool, man. Yeah, I've you know part of like studying history in college, and that and that was my major, which of course has nothing to do with what I do now, but gotten to learn like a, a lot of really cool d- different things, you know, going back to like the Renaissance all the way yeah. through, through modern times, of course. And I think my, my favorite event to tell people about, there's a, there's a couple and I'll start with, with the shortest one first is uh, learning about the Emu War. Uh-huh. Is, is that something you've, you've heard about before? I've heard about it, but couldn't tell you anything about it. Yeah. So it's, <clears throat> even when you say Emu War to people, they're like, dude, what the hell are you talking about? But it's something I find so fascinating because it, you had, in the literal sense, a group of emus against a modern Western military at the time. So you've got the the way this That's so wild, yeah. So the the way this whole thing started, it, it's it's just hilarious. Like the whole thing is is something out of a movie. Like yeah. it's something you couldn't believe. So the kind of to, to set the background here. Australia, of course, fought in World War One for the Allies. I think they're they're deployed all over Europe. These farmers get back, and they're granted land in Western Australia. Which, to that point, man, it was like 
pretty barren, but there were some wheat fields. So they, they told all these soldiers, it's like, hey, thank, thank you for your service. We're going to give you all this land in Western Australia, which of course is away from like Sydney, Brisbane, all these places where they probably wanted to live. But these farmers took them up on it. You know, they started settling in Western Australia and they, they realized that the land was like pretty shitty, but they can make, you know, make do with some wheat and some government subsidies, but it wasn't enough really. So Western Australia wanted to succeed from Australia. They wanted to totally break away, become their own country, right? Uh-huh. And this would have been a, a pretty big region of Australia. Australia at that time, still under the crown and to a certain extent today, I think it, it still is part of the Dominion, but it, then it was very much part of the British Empire. So the, these farmers, they, they're like, hey, we'll, you know, we'll stay here and we won't succeed, but we need subsidies and we need to get away from this massive problem we're having, which was emus. So these, <laughs> these pack of flightless birds, and if, you've, if you Google an emu, you can see what they look like. They're obviously ridiculous looking creatures, flightless birds. They start destroying the crops all over Australia, all over Western Australia. And these farmers are getting super agitated. They're like, we need someone in the state of Western Australia to help us with this. Like, we can't curb emus destroying our crops. They had giant issues with rabbits, too, which has been a, a problem throughout Australia's history. They just migrate yeah. super quick. I've heard that before. Yeah, so like rabbits. Because they weren't even native, right? They're broad. That's, that was the yeah. thing. That was the problem. And they were re- emus not native either? I think that's a good question. I think emus were native to okay. Australia, but. Or maybe not. I'll, I'll have to. We'll have to fact check that one. But these these emus kept destroying crops, and this defense minister, the Secretary of Defense of of Australia, is like, okay, we don't want Western Australia to succeed, so we're gonna like go in and help these guys. So they assign what's what's essentially like an equivalent of a platoon, give them all machine guns, automatic rifles, say, hey, we've got to wipe out these emus, right? The, the the emus were, you know, they, they recognized that these vehicles were coming towards them, started galloping or, or sprinting off into the distance where the roads were so bumpy that these machine gunners couldn't even hit these emus. And they're getting frustrated. They don't know what to do. All these Australian farmers are getting pissed too. This defense minister goes, all right, like we've got to up the ante. Like we've got to get more people out there, wipe out all these emus. It ends up being like a total PR disaster because news had spread from Australia to the United Kingdom at that time. England, even Winston Churchill hears about it. He's like, what the hell is going on in Australia? <laughs> like an emu war. Like, this is a joke. Like, we, we just got out of World War One, you know, about 15 years prior. And like, they're hearing about this nuisance in Australia. Like, it's it's making Australia look really stupid, right? And this is a, <laughs> this is a colony that kind of had a weird reputation because... They were, it was originally a penal colony. Like uh-huh. It was founded by prisoners of the British Empire. So it always kind of had this like funny reputation in the English. So they decide, all right, we're going to wipe out the emus. Like, no problem. We're going to send more, more weapons from Eastern Australia to Western Australia. We're going to make it happen. Yeah. So this, this goes on. It becomes a complete bungled operation again. They can't, like 50 emus total die. The defense minister ends up getting fired after this whole thing. And it's just become like this hilarious aspect of history that no, like obviously no one's really going to talk about, but you have this fortified, very well-trained military 
that can't defeat like they can't defeat a pack of flightless birds. So, <laughs> so what ends up happening? What ends up happening is the machine guns don't work, and the soldiers can't take out these emus. Western Australia gets you know obviously they're already really frustrated. The soldiers that came back from the war fought valiantly. They can't get their crops protected. To appease Western Australia, they eventually build these giant fences that keep the emus out. Everyone's happy. Now everyone lives in harmony with the emus, but they prevailed over a a well, you know, a well trained Western military at that time. That's I just, so funny. I just think it's one of the most absurd things ever. And uh, if you want, we can talk about hippo meat too. Yeah, we gotta talk about hippo meat. Yeah. So one of my favorite figures in U.S. history is this uh, this man named. Not Robert Baden Powell, Frederick Burnham Russell. So Frederick Burnham Russell, him and Robert Baden Powell are a little bit similar. So I mixed him up there for a second, but he he's considered the father of the scouting movement. So he was around late eighteen hundreds, early in his life. A group of Native Americans were raiding up in Minnesota. His mother and father hid him in this corn. To protect him from getting, you know, essentially taken or killed by these Native Americans. Mm -hmm. He ends up surviving. His house is burned down. He ends up reconnecting or reuniting with his mother and father like a week later because he like had to live on his own in the wilderness. And this kind of spurred his interest in the outdoors and scouting. So he, he has this really like great upbringing as a kid where his, I think it was like his babysitter at the time, whatever they called him back then would, yeah. would read stories to him about Africa. And as like a 14 year old, he's like, I know there's more to this life than just like being in Minnesota, like being a kid, like he was never interested in like playing games with other kids. Like he always like knew there'd be more to life than, than just like being in the neighborhood. Right. Or like being a teacher, whatever, whatever it is. So one day he just decides he's going to get, I think it was the Mississippi or Missouri river and just float downstream. So he's, I think late teenage year at this time, he ends up going to, you know, what then was kind of the end of the frontier. So he gets down to, I think Oklahoma or Texas and he meets all these guys that were former army scouts. He gets hooked up with them somehow, starts camping along with them and, he learns the ways of like the old scouts Wow! where this guy, he became so useful with, with scouting where he could like smell water from miles away. That's nuts. There's really interesting. One of the things that he said was the hardest about scouting or like becoming a military scout was it like eating was the hardest thing where like he could, he could like eat the same thing for days or get accustomed to any meal. But he's like, the, the danger of like an enemy never faced him at all. It was like hunger was what like really scared him. He's like, yeah, there might be like certain points where he could go days without eating, but eventually it would like catch up with them and it would like, they would actually like start to scare him. So this, he becomes what's known as like the father of the modern scouts. He gets sent to all crazy places throughout the U.S. and throughout the world. He's involved in the second Boer War in South Africa, uh-huh. where the South Africans fought the British, where he later his arch enemy becomes this guy named Fritz Duquesne, which we'll, we'll group this in at some point. He's another really interesting character in history. But <clears throat> the scout, throughout his travels throughout Africa, goes to Europe. You know, he works for the, the crown for a while. Comes so this would be like late 1800s? Late 1800s, oh. exactly. 
So we, we get to the point, I mean, this guy had a magnificent career and, you know, anyone listening can, can read more about his, his journeys. Cause it's, I mean, it's, it's incredible. He ends up getting, getting acquainted with this Senator from Louisiana. His last name is Broussard. And the reason they, they become acquainted with each other is they both understand that in the U S there's, there's a really big meat production problem. Immigration to the U S has skyrocketed from, Ireland, Italy, you know, all over Western Europe where, you know, we can't keep up production to meet the population demands. Because at the turn of the century, so many people were coming over and you have this style of farming and agriculture at that time. It just wasn't sustainable with the current population. So, you know, and the meat industry at that time, I don't know if you ever read, what was that Upton Sinclair book? The Jungle. The Jungle, Uh all about meat manufacturing, like the horrors behind it, where... People at that time, I mean, I mean, it was a big deal to read a book like that. It kind of had an interesting reaction by the American public at that time because they're like, wait, this is what's going on in these the Chicago stockyards. So these guys hatch a really interesting plan. You know, father of the scouting movement. I, I got to look up his name because I don't know why it's eluding me right now. <laughs> Give me a second. Yeah, Frederick Russell Burnham. There we go. Okay. Frederick Russell Burnham. And this congressman or the Senator Broussard is from Louisiana, as I mentioned, they decide they have to come up with a plan to, to make meat more readily available to American citizens. Right. So thinking about it, they've imported camels to the American Southwest. Like there's things that they thought about and, and they've done, but they're like, this isn't a sustainable solution. Uh-huh. So, so what they come up with is, Throughout his travels in Africa, he's like, well, we could bring hippos over here. Like, I've been on camps where hippos, hippo brisket's excellent. Wow. Like, we can we can eat hippo. Like, it'll be it'll be easy. We'll bring them over on a boat. And this congressman Broussard's like, this is a this is a great idea because what's really different from Louisiana, Florida, Mississippi, like climate wise, topographically, geographically, than like Africa. So they have this like brilliant idea where they're like, we're going to, we're going to make hippo meat the new thing in the United States. Right. They come up with this idea and it's twofold, right? Cause it can fix the American meat problem or the shortage. And this is, this is really interesting too. another, another layer of the story, Japan gifted new Orleans, these, these flowers that grow in water in 1884, mm-hmm. they get, they gift this, these flowers. And I'm not exactly, I think it was kind of a, a symbol of peace to the U S and it's this invasive species that grows. It kept growing and growing all <laughs> over the waterways through new Orleans, up the Mississippi where it actually starts blocking trading routes. No way. Super. Yeah. Super interesting. So they decided like, well, hippos will eat all these as well. So not only will we have them here, but they have something that they can eat. They can graze. It's going to solve all these problems. These guys continue to push this to Congress. They're like, ah, you know, we're not really so sure about this. But, you know, they, they really pitch this idea well because they're like, what, you know, why is a pork chop or a steak so, like, appetizing? Or, or why are you so used to it? It's just because you've had it forever. Like, sure. bringing over this other animal doesn't make anything different other than, like, you just have to get used to it and condition yourself to it. Yeah. So they, they pitched this for years in, in Congress and they even start the society. I think it was called like the New York Food Society where they get some financial backing. 
they kind of have some shady investors get involved even back in the 1900s it's like these weird these guys get involved that want to put their money somewhere but they're not really sure like the the motives and they really want to have the backing of the senator Broussard, the senator, ends up dying, I think, in 1917. So it's like right at the dawn of when the U.S. is going to get involved in World War I. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And it ends up the co- Congress decides that instead, and this is a really interesting lead up to today and something we can talk about, but the way the U.S. is going to farm and produce food, hippos aren't going to be the answer. It's going to be too logistically complicated to get them over. Uh-huh. The American public isn't going to be able to get used to having a hippo. You know, who's going to order a hippopotamus brisket on a menu? There's all these like different things that they decide to shoot the, the idea down with. But what they do decide to do is it's the advent of factory farming. Uh-huh. So they changed the way. So, you you know, now you have the Tysons, the Purdue's. Yeah. But that was kind of the advent of it is, you know, we're not going to bring in another species that, you know, who knows what could have happened. It's a fascinating sure. story, right? And you have these characters involved that what drew them together to, to bring the hippopotamus here is, is super fascinating and a, and a really weird aspect of American history, but it led to, it, it encouraged the conversation enough to where members of Congress are like, we're doing this wrong. We need to really pump out food. Might not be in the safest way. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was something I wanted to read to you from this excerpt of this book I read that I thought was really interesting regarding this. Cool. So that's essentially how America did choose to break through the Malthusian barrier that the new food supply society saw coming in 1910. Rather than diversify and expand our stock of animals, we developed ways to raise more of the same animals in more places. Gradually, that process led to factory farms and mass confinement operations we have today. A mammoth industry whose everyday practices and waste products are linked to all kinds of dystopian mayhem. From the rise of antibiotic-resistant bacteria to a spate of spontaneous abortions in Indiana to something called blue baby syndrome, in which infants actually turn blue after drinking formula mixed with tap water that's been polluted from runoff from nearby feedlots. The same runoff also slushes down the Mississippi River to its mouth, polluting one of the world's biggest aquatic dead zones, seven or 8,000 square miles large at times, an overblown, reeking grotesque of exact conditions in the Water Hastinth was creating there, far more modestly in Broussard's time, the senator that we talked about. Uh-huh. Meanwhile, the flower, so I was wrong about this. Meanwhile, the flower continues to cause problems to this day, wow. blocking waterways, causing all sorts of issues, killing fish, fishermen. I mean, it's brutal. The state of Louisiana alone spends more than $2 million a year spraying herbicides. Wow, that's crazy. So you have this cycle that perpetuates, right? So. I just thought it was an interesting thing to tie in as absurd of a story as it is when you first talk about it's like hippos being brought to the U.S. Then it led to this advent of factory farming. Yeah. Mass producing meat too. And it's funny how both the story you just told, like just the devastation these invasive species have caused, these habitats. It's funny. Yeah. It's funny, but it's crazy. Yeah. What do you you think about, uh, I mean, we could could go on about this for a while too, but like this... It seems in the last five years, we've really had a lot of these different sorts of like newer meats come uh-huh. out, like whether it's like, uh, what is it, Beyond Burgers, sure. like those sorts of things yeah. too. Do you think that's that has its place like and will continue to be a, an alternative to meat? I don't know. I, I don't trust it, frankly. I, I <laughs> and you and I, I think, probably feel the same way. It's like because it's being pushed so much. And, you know, I've, I've heard you talk about this before, but it's like the 2030 yeah. 
like you'll own nothing and be happy. Yeah. You know, we're really going to cut our carbon footprint with less, less meat. I don't know if I buy that. Yeah. Like I, and Hey dude, here's to say like, if people don't want to eat meat, that's totally cool. Like mm-hmm. I, I get it, but cutting it out altogether, I don't know if, if it's feasible. Yeah. And not even just that, but I think also like if people want to like go vegetarian, like, like why don't we just go to sustainable farming? You eat like natural fruits and vegetables. Yes. Like we always have, right? Like it's, it's like you look at the grocery store and all of it's like just this nasty artificial processed stuff. You wonder why it's so hard for people to stay healthy. Yeah. I mean, that's, a, I think that's a huge part of it is like you have so many of these choices and it's like, I mean, am I going to like buy these apple, the average consumer, am I going to buy apples for my family or dude, it's cheaper to buy some chips, like, you know, cook some stuff that, or, right. or pre prefurbished meals instead of cooking because dude, the society we live, I mean, like it's gotta be really hard to carve out the time to cook for a family where it's yeah. like, dude, I can buy something that's cheaper, readily available to eat. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to read the label on it. I'm just going to go ahead and eat it. But it, it's interesting how we've gotten to that, that point where that's yeah. just acceptable. Yeah. Like it's, I mean, it goes back to what you've talked about with big corporations. Mm-hmm. Certainly, mm-hmm. I think the answer is we just need more hippo meat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we could we could agree on that. Would you try it? Oh yeah, yeah. What's sense. what's the weirdest food you've ever had? That's a good question. I spent a, some time in China, so probably something over there. Let me think about that. How about yeah. you? I went to Iceland in 2017, and I had fermented shark. How was that? So gross, dude. Yeah, it sounds yeah. terrible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we walked into this this giant shed. It was like in this little like Icelandic fishing village. It was like part of this whole like tour thing. And you walk in, and, dude. There's just sharks, like Greenlandic sharks, monsters, just like hanging. And they're like, "Yeah, you guys are gonna get to try this." Uh-huh. Like, oh boy! So <clears throat> you like go over, and like no one really wanted to, besides like me and a few other people that were in our group. I'm like, oh yeah, I'll give it a try. Like, why not? It's just like this this piece of shark meat. Uh-huh. So you eat it, and they give you a shot of vodka after to cleanse your palate. Dude, uh-huh. it was it was horrible. Uh-huh. And I remember reading about it after. I just like Googled fermented shark, and I thought this was funny. Anthony Bourdain said it was the worst thing he's ever tried. <laughs> and it's like I'm thinking, like, damn, this dude's eaten everything. Yeah. And he said that was the the worst thing he's ever eaten. Was, That's hilarious. Was fermented shark. Yeah. What were you in China for? So I did a, a summer abroad there in okay. Beijing, and I was just thinking it. So the uh, pride that it actually was as gross as it sounds was actually super good, but it was at this Sichuanese restaurant, okay. which Sichuan is like a southwestern province that's known for just like insanely spicy food. Yeah, and it was it was duck tripe. It was it was tripe. I think beef tripe boiled in duck blood. And it was crazy spicy, but it was actually like super good. That sounds. Good to me. Yeah, yeah. I, would, I would give it a try. Yeah. What's uh, if you don't mind talking about this? What's your diet like now, or like your your normal routine? Yeah, I last couple of years I've like I've been smoking too much weed for sure, so I've gotten out of a good eating habit because of that. But I do get like prepackaged keto meals just because I'm super lazy and don't know how to cook. Yeah, no, <laughs> dude, I, I totally get that. Yeah. yeah. Are you still doing the CrossFit thing? No, I'm doing yoga now, but I think I, uh, when I moved over here, I stopped doing CrossFit and I think that's definitely contributed to me getting out of shape. How's, uh, how's like yoga helped overall? Just like physically, I like it a mentally? Lot. Yeah. I think, I also think once I bring weight training back into it, it's going to like, like having that flexibility and stability is going to be a game changer. Right. So I love the yoga, but it just, I, I'm, I'm just not getting the strength built or, you know, the calories burnt that I'd like. What was your favorite part about CrossFit when you did it? Man, I, I love CrossFit. 
I think the intensity of it, right, where it's like you're doing super hard work for an hour straight, but like it flies by and you don't even notice. Yeah, and then the feeling afterwards, totally. it's top notch for sure. Yeah, yeah, I've I've never belonged to a like a box, but just like doing CrossFit workouts in college, uh-huh. and later on, it seems like the community is a is a big aspect of it. Yeah, too, for that sure. was great for sure. How about you? What's your routine like? Yeah, it's a that's a good question, man. You know, I've I've been pretty into weight training probably since like I was 21, 22. Uh-huh. You know, I, I'd say what I do has certainly evolved over the years with just injury, Burn. especially with my back. I was one of those guys like when I was younger, just like trying to do as much weight as possible. Uh-huh. And like got into powerlifting where, you know, it was just all about like hitting certain numbers. I'm glad those days are over. It was a lot of ego for sure. But I would say now, you know, I go to the gym probably six days a week, typically focus on training three or four specific body or muscle groups, sure. I would say. So that keeps me pretty fresh. I think it really helps me cognitively too. Mm-hmm. I think with my job, if I don't have that outlet, I'll kind of go crazy. Like I can tell if I haven't worked out for a few days, I can kind of tell like my my mood is a little bit off. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, as far, as far as that, definitely, you know, pretty serious with weight training. Uh-huh. Um, something I've, I've been passionate about for, you know, just about 10 years now. But I go to a gym out by me in, in Wheat Ridge uh-huh. that I like a lot. And, and the community aspect of it's great too. Cause uh-huh. like what I like about it is everybody that is there just to like train and lift weights, not like take photos in the mirror. Like yeah. they're not there for TikTok and that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> I would say as far as like eating routine goes, I, I try to eat relatively clean. Uh-huh. You know, I'll have those like binges of course too, or like I'll smash gummy worms or something, you know? And one thing, you know, I know you and I have talked about it like in passing before, but Certainly the last couple of years limiting alcohol Yeah, where I don't have, you know, if I do go out, I don't have as many drinks as I used to, uh-huh. or, you know, I'll, I'll have one or abstain altogether. And I think that's really given me, dude, I just remember waking up on Sundays and be like, man, like, I don't even know if I can go to work tomorrow. Yeah. Like I feel so hungover and just like so sluggish. So I think like cutting back drinking, you know, sticking to a, a good routine with my food habits. Typically what I like have for dinner, like some simple white rice, salmon, mm-hmm. another vegetable, that kind of thing. Just to, you know, have a balanced diet mm-hmm. of sorts keeps mm-hmm. me feeling pretty good, mm-hmm. but certainly cutting out alcohol has like, dude, I, I feel better at my age now and I'm, and I'm only 31, but then I did when I was 22, just because of that. Sure. So, yeah. I mean, that definitely made a big, big difference for me too. How's your back now? Much better, man. And I'm, I'm very proactive with my routine. Uh-huh. So like, I don't know. Have you ever heard of Dr. Stuart McGill? Uh-huh. A chance if you get a back injury, you'll definitely hear about him. <laughs> so he's this Canadian doctor and he, he coined the McGill big three. So it's, it's bird dogs, side planks, and then these kind of like modified crunches. So when I first hurt my back, I, you know, I was scouring Reddit. I'm like, how do I, you know, fix my back? Like, mm-hmm. where and how did you hurt it again? So I initially heard it, I was playing basketball in New Zealand and I, I just fell hard on uh-huh. it and kind of had some sciatic pain. And what really screwed me is I kept playing rugby. Like, uh-huh. like not only while I was in New Zealand, when I got back to college, I kept playing Kept playing the year after that to the point, dude, it was like, cause I just thought I'm like, oh, I pulled something. Like, sure. I'll just play through it. I remember I was at the gym one time squatting and I had this like super intense pain and just being like, okay, something isn't right. Like I need to, need to look into this and L4, L5. So the lowest discs were herniated, mm-hmm. which is where like two discs are pushing together 
to the point where the, the fluid that keeps your disc like lubricated was coming out and hitting a nerve, which caused like severe like leg pain to the point where it was like really numb just brutal but yeah back is doing great now because of the mobile big three like i do those every every time i lift i warm up that way it's just part of my routine a couple of videos that i found on youtube like stretching wise that really really help kind of loosen up the hamstrings obliques lower back build up the hamstrings like muscle groups that i never really focused on that it's yeah. like this is so important that even like walking correctly and like trying to sit a little more upright yeah being a little more conscious of just things like that but i uh, try to get a massage every couple weeks to loosen everything up and then have you ever been to stretch lab uh-uh. there's one on 38th but there's a few in the denver location but it's it's almost like a physical therapy but anybody can drop in and you do like a 50 minute stretch hmm. assisted stretching so that's really helped me just keep like hamstrings loose quads things that i never would have really thought about prior to, to going there but it, dude it's awesome like i would recommend it okay cool like and even like even if you're not like lifting or running right now whatever, whatever like it's great to just like stretch dude like you just go like pay for a drop-in or something yeah uh-huh. yeah it's cool i think i think you'd enjoy it but yeah yeah the routine right now it's pretty solid you know i wish i had a little bit more time in the day so i wasn't yeah. like rushing from work to the gym so i could kind of get everything cleared up that way but it's one of those things man where i've just it's become such an ingrained part of my day that yeah. it's not something I I miss if I don't have to. Yeah. You know? That's great, man. That's a really good habit to build. Yeah. What else you got for me? <laughs> I think that might be it, man. This, <laughs> yeah. was, this was a killer conversation. It was. Man. Yeah, it was. It was great, man. I, I know, uh, you know we took a couple dark turns. There. <laughs> I think you and I both learned something. Yeah, at least, at least a few things. So, uh, yeah, I appreciate you having me on, man. It was yeah. great, great to reconnect as well. Absolutely, man. I appreciate you coming on. And, you know, I uh, we talk about dark topics on this on this podcast a lot. And I, I, I don't do that to, like, scare people or, you know, any of that kind of stuff. I just I think it's people deserve the truth. People want the truth. And right. that's the only way we get past the situation we're in right now is when we re- recognize the truth nature of the problem right i think uh, you know the the sooner people realize that too like we can get closer to a solution yeah and, like, everybody be happier have these conversations again and yeah i was yeah. just stoked to come on here with you and yeah well and i meant to tell you too i mean it's it's full circle for me too because i think the first time i ever even heard of like QAnon, right was you and you and connor talking about it and i was like what is this, right? And yeah. then it's like fast forward, and you're like, "Holy shit!" And you know, I, I I still have a lot of mixed feelings about that. And I, you know, I think it's it, anyway. Not not to go down that road, but anyway, just point is like, I, I appreciate being able to talk about these kind of things with you for sure. Right? Yeah, Connor would be a good guy to have on here too. Yeah, because you, I know you guys have a lot of overlapping interests and in like you know, especially with crypto, uh-huh, uh-huh. those sorts of things too. But yeah, I remember like. Some some of these topics that we talked about now, had we talked about them three years ago, like it would have been like such a, a like people would have been like, why are these guys talking about this? Yeah. But now it's like we can come here and have this conversation and talk to a ton of other people about mm-hmm. the same things, man. So it's it's exciting. And I'm it is. stoked to be have that conversation with you, man. Hell yeah, man. Well, thanks for coming on. Of course. All right, brother. Later. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. In this conversation, I made serious allegations of corruption and criminality against Hillary Rodham Clinton. 
For this outro, I decided to write an essay compiling the evidence of these facts upon which I base these allegations. That essay quickly became the longest one I've ever written, so I've broken it into a separate podcast due to length. That essay, Who is Hillary Rodham Clinton?, begins with episode 56. Be forewarned, there's no returning from the other side of this rabbit hole.